kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 526, podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, after an eternity, we've got the great Matthias van der Roost back on the show alongside Bill Scurry. And it's a very unusual topic. We're tackling the English language period of French director Louis Mal, a director who has never come up on uh, the podcast before, but he's a, a director I've been a fan of since I was like, 20 but guys welcome back to ron reed pleasure to be here yeah so what is it about louis mal that made y'all want to pitch this topic because it's a funny thing where when people talk about the french new wave while he was making things at that time like elevator to the gallows he never gets mm. lumped in with that crop or that i think i think he just was off in his own space and had a, a different background so on and so forth and then he had this third act where he started making some of his best movies with the english language but how did Louis Mao kind of pop up on y'all's radar? Take it, Matthias. Yeah, uh, well, what happened was we were, um, well, since the world ended, uh, we've been uh, <laughs> watching a lot of movies together. And at a certain point, I forget which one we watched first, but we watched like two or three of his movies in a row. Y'all were and watching Pretty Baby on repeat? Just <laughs> <laughs> No, we were not. No, uh, with a, uh, a double feature with cuties. <laughs> No, 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 no. Uh, we watched, I think, Atlantic City because it came up through IMDb recommendations. And then uh, we watched um, uh, The Lovers because I'd had the DVD for a long time, uh, but I never watched it. And then we watched Viva Maria. And then I think... Crackers. Yes, we did watch that one as well. Uh, and then that's where the idea came up. Well, for people out there who might be unfamiliar with Louis Mal, apart from like one or two of his major movies, give us uh, some loose background. Who is this guy? I mean, he has a very unusual start to his filmmaking career. Well, he was super young. I noticed that like his first two movies uh, feature lengths, like Escalator to the Gallows and The Lovers. I think he was, what What was he, 28? 24, uh, maybe, right? 20, but yeah, 20. but even be before that, though, I mean, he was working with Jacques, Jacques Cousteau. Cousteau. Yeah, he was yeah, an was undersea like camera operator. He was an undersea photographer for Jacques Cousteau in the beginning. And I think that must have been in the in the early, mid-50s. And that was a, a whole new uh, field of photography because um, people had done uh, undersea photography uh, you know, undersea filmmaking before, but Jacques Cousteau was the guy who really turned it into a brand. And um, everything that Jacques Cousteau did was groundbreaking. They had to invent technology to make this stuff happen. And um, yeah, so you figure the couple of guys who got on board with him, these Frenchmen who would get, get this gigantic freighter. I forget what it was called. It was this boat that was like, now it's like a museum because it's the Jacques Cousteau Museum, but they would travel around the world in this freaking giant boat. Jump in the water with whale sharks under the polar ice caps, all this crazy ass shit that he would do. So you needed like guys who were scientists, guys who were intrepid, putting together cameras, whether, you know, make sure the salt water doesn't get in there, make sure they don't freeze in the Arctic. And yeah, of all people, Louis Ma must have just been a hungry French dude looking for any work he could get. So that that is a very unusual uh, or the kind of background, I should say, that maybe is like worthy of a Werner Herzog movie. Um, absolutely. Right? Yeah, like, the, the, the kind I, of guy. I think yeah. the world needs more adventurer filmmakers. Yeah, he's definitely he's definitely that. Um, and so I, I think that's why he's not lumped in with the um, 
you know, the rest of the Nouvelle Vague, as they say, uh, even though he, he was he was a contemporary of all those guys. But they all started as critics. I think that's the big distinction. Like yeah. Jacques, Jacques Rivette and, you know, Godard and so on and so forth. All those guys, they were all working for like Cahiers du Cinema and things like that. And so when they made that pivot, it was from the point of view of like total complete film mania. And I don't, from what I've, from what I've read about Louis Mal, he doesn't seem to be one of those diehard film freaks where he was, you know, jacking off to Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and that sort of thing, <laughs> way that like Francois Truffaut was. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, he has as much uh, much of a foot in the documentary world too, uh, where some of these other guys didn't. They just were pure narrative filmmakers. But Louis Mal went back and forth between doing docs all around the damn world. That's why I say the Herzog thing, because he went to Calcutta. He did like a massive miniseries in India, which I haven't watched. I'm sure it's great. But I mean, there, there's not as much documentary stuff, but he always took time out of the narrative stuff to zip into doc. And that's, again, another like Werner Herzogian trademark is that that he, no matter what he was doing, Werner always made sure that there was equal time for... Um, you know, narrative. Yeah, which you owe me a big Werner Herzog episode. I do, I do. And I, you know what? I asked like Cotto, I asked a couple of guys if anybody wanted to come in on it and no one bit so far. Any, anyone's invited, but if not, we just do the two of us, but I am a Herzog devotee. Herzog came out with- do all his movies or well, just some No, I mean, all can't, it's not possible. I think he's made like 85 films. He, <laughs> well, he, like, he all the, the documentaries as well. Like, he's got, I think he did two things that came out this year, right? Yeah, two movies this year during the, I mean, just by coincidence, they came out during the plague i saw both of them and they're incredible they were both great i mean he is almost 80 years old he's not slowing down you know yeah yeah mm. i already have an episode name if you guys do that what bill scurry eats his own shoe <laughs> ah very nice <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to do an episode on Werner Herzog as well but i gotta say like it's so much like i feel like it's you'd have to a giant it body of work well we'll save that for another day because today is all about louis mal so let's just dive right into things the movies y'all picked were atlantic city my dinner with andre alamo bay um damage and vanya on 42nd street but i think you can't talk about those without at least mentioning <laughs> pretty baby <laughs> There are times where I'm reluctant even to talk about Pretty Baby because Louis Mal's never been canceled. And I feel like cancel culture is a weird thing where you have all these people who don't necessarily do a lot of research or a lot of homework, mm -hmm. but then they'll like stumble across something like, oh my God, so-and-so said this or so-and-so did that. Uh, They're you canceled. You don't want to tip anyone off. Yeah. And so it's like, I don't even want to let like the world know that Pretty <laughs> Baby exists because it's available. You can just rent it on Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon. And I was talking about this the other night with Marcus and Rob. I was like, we can all agree that if somebody is like, playing with their kids when they're you know really really innocent like toddlers and they're naked running around no big deal and i think we can mm. all agree that if uh, you have a, a beautiful young woman who's 18 or 19 and she appears in a movie no big deal but there's a there's a spot in between and it's different for everybody where you're like all right well that's inappropriate and i think <laughs> louis mal might have landed right in the sweet spot <laughs> like peak yeah. inappropriateness but he made brooke shields an international superstar playing a uh, a child prostitute in a whorehouse and I've seen the movie, and Susan Sarandon's incredible in it. Keith Carradine's incredible in it. But do y'all have any strong feelings one way or another about Pretty Baby? Because once again, it, that movie played in theaters. Like, I'm blown away that it even exists. Well, Matash, you're European. You're more sophisticated yeah. than these two Cro-Magnons you're recording with. <laughs> what are the rules governing nudity in film from your enlightened well, perspective? I think this is also like a French thing, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, I have to say, like... Um, 
I think what there were like two scenes where she was actually naked. Yes, like, there's yeah, one big one where really she's creepy. she's breaking yeah. all the plates for us and she's throwing her temper mm -hmm. tantrum and he's calling her a little brat and blah blah blah. But that's yeah. the big scandalous one. It was weird, but I have to say in general, like around like the 70s, 80s, there's a lot of movies back then that were about kids in weird situations. Like you got like Christiana F from Germany, or you have uh, Siska that out which Bill recently watched, which is like a childhood classic about a kid who ends up stabbing his mother to death and stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know, I, it, it's weird. Um, yeah, this was not my favorite movie out of uh, the bunch. <laughs> it, I've, it, it, like the whole au auction scene where they're auctioning off her virginity, yeah. it's such a weird thing. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it was really creepy. You know, it, it's one of those when you're watching, you're like, are people just gonna like kick in my door and arrest me like any second for even watching this thing? Because that's how I felt when I when I was watching it. Like I, I'm willing to watch yeah. anything under the sun, but that definitely took me out of my comfort zone. Well, but it's one of those things where if you are, I'm, I'm a bit of a freedom of speech zealot, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to art and freedom of expression. Once again, it's like. It, it tests even my kind of free will and attitude towards freedom of expression, but the movie's out there. And if you, people want to check it out, it's on Amazon to rent or buy just, you know, free and clear. Well, let's well, something to be said for uh, the idea that, well, you know, you should be able to tell a story about a kid uh, who happens to grow up in bad circumstances. So, you know, a whorehouse or I don't know, their parent is some sort of criminal. Like, you know, I don't think that should necessarily be illegal, but that's not the same thing as, oh, we need to have a topless scene in this thing. Well, in America, like the Tendrum, the Volker Schlondor film, at one point, people were raiding video stores and grabbing copies off the shelves. And it wasn't even child nudity. There is a, you know, whatever term you want to use, a little person who's the, the lead of that movie, who at one point, he looks like a little boy, but he gets it on with like his nanny, but he's an adult. But it mm. looks like it's a little boy getting along with his nanny and people wow. lost their fucking minds. And my early boss, Bronco Lustig, was the first AD on it. And he also plays the, uh, the ringmaster and he has a great little scene in there. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Tin Drum. But in America, typically this sort of thing doesn't fly. So it's right. when people apply outrage to things, whether it's from, um, from, whether it's from the left or the right, outrage is never really applied equally or consistently. So Tin Drum got banned and, and that came out, I think, in 80. So it's yeah. right around that same period as Pretty Baby, but for whatever reason, Pretty Baby managed to just sneak on through. And so it just always, it's always fascinating to me when, where, and how outrage is applied. Well, well I, and also the, the other thing I think is, feels kind of hypocritical, but um, like people are outraged at the fact, because they know this is an underage person, but then you also have adult actors and actresses who, when you see them naked in a movie, they kind of look like they're underage. So like, it, it's like, a you know, what's the difference at that point? I, I think speaking in terms of like the, mo I, James, when we were talking about this first, you had said something like, can we legally post GIFs on social media of this without getting busted for, for pederasty? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to, but I think you would get banned. No, you would, you would. But I mean, I think yeah. that in terms of the modern conversation with this movie, because you're right, I was, uh, maybe the first time I heard of it was when you and Matthias both first brought up to me because I didn't realize that the nudie pictures- we didn't bring of, up Pretty Baby. We well, right, no, we didn't, but it, it came up as a thing. And then it's like, I'd seen the pictures of Susan Sarandon online for years because people had posted, you know, oh, those scenes are insanely hot. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, wrong with those. The, the booby, the booby pictures of Susan Sarandon were out there from this and the thirst and, and, and Atlantic city was legendary for, we're going to talk about that in a little while, mm. but, um, and Joe. Yes. And Joe on top of that too. 
But in terms of the modern conversation, yeah, you know what? A lot of people don't know about this movie, but let's say if they did, let's say some people stumble onto it either because of this podcast or just because the you know, world is grinding on. You know, yeah, this, like the 1971 Playboy interview with John Wayne, suddenly a right. new generation discovers it, like, mm, well, we don't like yeah, this. And yeah. a, a bunch of 18-year-old high school kids discovered Pretty Baby. I'm sure plenty of them would lose their shit. But this movie was co-written by Polly Platt. I mean, I... Every single... Yeah, every single... Yeah, Polly Platt. If you guys don't know Polly Platt, which I'm sure you do, Polly Platt was Peter Bogdanovich's ex-partner, a creative equal... Legendary production designer and major producer. Exactly. On some of the greatest films of the 70s, she had a a, a tremendous hand on the tiller for a lot of those things. And I wouldn't necessarily call this one of the tremendous hands of the films of the 70s. However, it is a very French film. It is a very 70s new way uh, uh, easy riders raging bulls generation movie and i think it means something different if a woman comes on and co-authors it now i'm not saying that that that's a you know that gets out of showing brooke shields in the nudity and all that stuff however i think that you talk about whatever that idea of the gaze being i don't know i and i'm not qualified to talk about this but it does mean something different and i'm not saying that to exculpate me myself from watching it i have no problem watching a movie like this i have no problem telling someone else to watch a movie like this but I do think the fact that there was a female co-creator has a different meaning than just the sort of gross, disgusting auction scene of, of, of it's virginity. It's not a bunch of 50-year-old men making a movie about underage girls. This, and like, this is know, not Joe Esterhaz's Pretty Baby, James. And a lot of people have said that Pretty Baby, given its subject matter, is actually incredibly restrained and tame in its depiction of that world. You're not – this is not – spank material where you're like oh my god i'm watching all these amazing movies right. of like girls working in whorehouses it's just not like it's a movie about w- w- this phenomenon of older men who are obsessed with younger girls but are also from like a more artistic standpoint whether it's through photography or painting or whatever which is a thing in art i mean people photographers do take pictures of underage boys and girls people do create paintings of, so it's like if a subject exists then filmmakers should be able to point their camera at it and tell stories about it so i agree with matthias that when it comes to telling stories, the moment you say something's off limits, I think you're almost kind of creating unintended consequences. Yeah, and not only that, but the photographer that that Keith Carradine was playing was a real guy. Belloc was a real photographer who really took those pictures. So this was intended to kind of be a biopic of this guy. You know, he was not an eccentric, but he was like, Mm. I guess, a turn of the century or 1910s, 1920s artist in in, in Louisiana. As the sort of um, sex work, the, the public sex work, all those brothels, those old colonnaded brothels were going away. So this is almost like, I, I'm not going to compare it to shampoo where you're seeing the end of an era. But in a way, Louis Mal was trying to say this was some strange, you know, humid Spanish moss version of the South that was about to get crushed in the oncoming 20th century by the wars and by industrialization, by the changing culture. And this guy Belloc's pictures were like, was like a time capsule. Also, if Vladimir Navikov can write about this subject with Lolita, mm-hmm. then a filmmaker can make a film about it. It's one of those things like Vladimir Nabokov's one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Lolita is a scandalous novel, but it exists and it's a masterpiece. So yeah, it's one of those things where when in doubt, I always err on the side of let the writers and the artists and the photographers and filmmakers do the thing. As long as everything's consensual, everybody's kind of, I, mean, once I think Brooke Shields' parents were there on the set. So, but I think, but you are quite literally walking through a field of landmines. And so you just got to take each and every single precaution. I think we'll get into this as well on damage. 
anything involving sex of any kind, I feel like you need to take as much care and pay as much attention to it as if you're doing like a really elaborate stunt with like fire and machine guns and car crashes. So much can go wrong in a completely different way. And so you just <laughs> really have to be as careful as humanly possible and just make sure that everybody's on board and everybody's going into it with their eyes open. And because otherwise horrible things can happen. <laughs> otherwise, And for what, and that sounds like Brooke Shields doesn't look back on this experience in any way, shape or form as a negative experience. Yeah, uh, she was she was some sharpshooting parents in Manhattan. They were New Yorkers. They knew open up. And she'd been in a movie or two beforehand. You know, she knew it. And she was in uh, freaking Blue Lagoon after this. So it's yeah, but that was a couple years later. Yeah, I and know. Mm. Yeah, right. And she was in the Calvin Klein ad. There, there's there is. I know that this wasn't the only time that sex entered her career, especially when she was a young age. I'm not. And again, I'm not blaming her for sexuality or anything like that. But it was a real component of what she was doing. This is how she made a lot of money. And, you know, great. She, she yeah, set made, the like tone. I said, made her an international superstar. Yeah. Like Johnny Drama said in the show uh, Entourage, oh, Brooke Shields. She is the first person I seriously jerked off to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You want to switch it up to Atlantic All right. City? Well, let's get out of quicksand. And before we completely get ourselves canceled, let's dive into Atlantic City, a movie that's much less controversial, but a very interesting movie and one of the strongest movies in Louis Mao's career. So, uh, Matthias, tee it up. What's going on in Atlantic City? Atlantic City. It will change every idea you ever had about winning and losing. You looked. You spilled your drink. Oh, no, no, you took your eyes up. You allow me to distract you. Teach me stuff. Susan Sarandon. Like what? She has the ambition. What you know. Burt Lancaster has the experience. I'll think about it. Just hand him this. I'll wait outside. Hey, you ain't trying to set me up now, are you? I'm trusting you. I left a fortune in your apartment. What are you talking about? Alone, they might not make it. Together, they might not survive. Tell those hoods to leave the women alone. What they're looking for, I got. I watch you. What do you do when you watch me? Hey, foxy grandpa. I look at you. You take off your blouse, then you run the water. You open a box of blue soap, and you take the soap in your hands. It's over now. I want the money. Give me the money. You run your hands under the water to feel the temperature. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Give me the money. Now. Then you take a bottle of gold perfume, and you... You saved my life. The money. Money, money, money. A room for me and my mother. Glad to see you born again. Bert Lancaster. Anyone ever take care of you like I did? If you're safe. Susan Sarandon. Atlantic City. For everyone who's ever needed one more chance. Okay, let's see. Uh, you have Burt Lancaster who plays this, uh, this old guy who used to be a sort of a mobster. He's like a small-time criminal. He has a neighbor played by Susan Sarandon and her sister who had run off with her husband, uh, they show back up and they have this cocaine that they're gonna sell uh, that they stole from some criminals in Philadelphia. And these criminals show up in Atlantic City and they go after you know whoever has the coke and uh, this uh, deadbeat husband, well, is he deadbeat? No, but like the husband uh, involves Bird Lancaster in selling Deadbeat's far too kind a of term. He's a total fucking- He's an just- 
scumbag loser yeah. who's yeah so I, I think you're you're being far too kind mm. he is played by robert joy who it's kind of funny seeing him as a young guy because i only knew him as the the medical examiner on csi and it's like oh oh yeah he used to be young i guess yeah. he's a pro he's a good character actor that guy never nothing ever suffered from having him on board that's for sure Oh, man. And what I like about this movie, I mean, when they're talking about the younger version of uh, Bird Lancaster, especially when he's in the scenes with uh, the the widow of one of his friends uh, that he used to work for, uh, this uh, guy named Cookie Pinza, uh, there's always that sort of idea of like, oh, he used to be this big time gangster guy. Uh, and we recently watched uh, The Rose Tattoo with Bird Lancaster, and I always think of like oh yeah that's what they're referring to like the young you know tall imposing muscular guy who was you know beating people up and all that kind of thing uh but i have to say i think a lot of that is misplaced i think he was never the kind of gangster that he uh makes it sound like i think yeah in the movie definitely i mean as a performer obviously he did things like brute force which are just Mm -hmm. like film noir classics but in the context of this film he seems like his rep is kind of undeserved like he was always kind of a loser in ways and you hear like this is my favorite moment in the entire movie mm. is when you hear the widow screaming downstairs like you know who he's a calling back in the day oh, yeah. numb nuts and i was like i mean that's the funniest fucking thing i've ever heard and i started howling so something tells me he was never all that sharp or all that tough but now he just you know people just like kind of he just he's i don't know how to say it he's got a rep and people show him respect but he's still got to work for a living and that sort of thing. But people are just very kind. I think they're almost trying to like be, be generous to him by allowing him to have this larger than life persona. I think it's one of those things where if you're the last one standing, people assume that's because you were the best at it, which is yeah. not necessarily true. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, you know, who, who was supposed to play this role? Their first choice was um, Henry Fonda. And, and uh, he wound up almost like going neck and neck over for the Oscars with On Golden Pond and actually won for On Golden Pond. But I prefer, obviously, this is the version we have, but I mean, I can't think of any other actor but Burt Lancaster playing this role. Oh, he's perfect. he's perfect. Hey, he's perfect. I mean, yeah, you're, like, for a guy who has such a, a gigantic back and he has that freaking gymnast form, the guy was lithe and muscular and, and all these things. And it's like, and yet he was really good at playing a busted version of himself and like this and a swimmer. I don't know how he got to that place where like he just, you know, he looks like he's a powerful guy, but it's all built on like, you know, a pitted, uh, a crunchy, holy surface that there's nothing left. And he's just standing on, 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 you know, sand that's collapsing. Yeah, I mean, he was born in 1913. So at this point, I mean, he is well into his 60s. Yeah, right. And, but he, st- he still fills out the raincoat. He's got a very regal air to him. I mean, there's, there's an essential Lancasterness you can't take away from the guy. But he adds so much sort of the, the age and sadness to it, too, where, I mean, what I love about this movie is I forget, James, have you, have you been to Atlantic City? I forget. Uh, never to like to do anything. I've just like been through it, but I've okay. never actually done like the casinos thing. I've never been down there for a fight and so on or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, I, but it is cool to see in Atlantic City through a European lens when you've got all these casinos being torn down and other ones coming up. Like I love movies about America from people who are not from America because you just see it. And I, like like going back to Herzog, like movies like Strocheck and things like that. You just see America through a, a different point of view. And I think Louis Mao is, seems to be fascinated by what amounts to this 
kind of cheap downtrodden boardwalk filled with like criminality and drugs and gambling and any place where there's rampant gambling of course it's going to have a lot of criminality and the thing is the gambling was only legal four years earlier and gambling went legal in atlantic city in 1976 because that was a way for new jersey to try to get some life back into it because it was falling apart from its heyday in the 20s and 30s so i mean in the background he's very they were i think they shot footage for close to two years beforehand to get the demolition of these hotels because it had been ongoing they had to just do the first unit photography when they could but they got a lot of second unit stuff around the clock whenever they whenever they could find it and so you know the very last shot is a wrecking ball hitting that as the credits roll the wrecking ball is bringing down that hotel that had been there from the golden the golden age and so, you know, externally, you have this picture of Atlantic City, which is a shithole. I mean, it's a fucking shithole at this point. It looks just terrible. It looks gray, drab. It's, it's, it's urban blight, that whole, you know, Ford-era America, at least the East Coast, where it was just left to dispossess. I mean, we love what New York looks like in 1980s in the movies. You look driller killer or something like that. It's like, that is the grittiest shit you can find. I don't want to live in it, but I want to watch... Yeah, right. I want to I want to watch movies about it. And so like you have that going on the outside, that sort of East Coast dispossession. And then on top of that, Lancaster is like one of those hotels. He's one of those buildings. He, he, he does such a well, good job. Unlike the buildings, though, he's never really had his glory days because yeah. we as we learned toward the end. He wasn't ever Bugsy Siegel's cellmate. He shared a cell with him for about 10 minutes yeah. and he wasn't a mafia hitman. The first people he's ever killed are the two people that come after him and Susan Sarana. And he's thrilled because he has finally had his moment. He's been waiting his entire life to actually accomplish something and be the big man, be a tough guy. And he's so excited. <laughs> he's got like the newspaper headlines. He's like, you see that? I did that. I did that. Like he's so proud. And so he, I think he's even in a worse state than some of these buildings, but he's finally actually getting to come into his own and be what he's always wanted to be. So in a strange way, it's a very optimistic, uplifting movie that this lifelong loser is having he's having a moment where he gets to be a big shot yeah anything else matthias uh well i mean <laughs> uh did you guys hear um at the funeral of the the husband character they mentioned that it's in moose jaw canada saskatchewan yeah moose jaw saskatchewan yeah, it's kind of funny and also I, I like that weird when they kill him he's like trying to get away through this weird parking structure thing. I, that's like, such a weird it's amazing. Scene. Yeah. Very, uh, very different. But you know, my, my favorite sequence in this movie is, is um, when Susan Sarandon's on the horn in the hospital and she, yes. she walks through a Robert Goulet song and it's, it is it, almost surreal, but it's not because it's actually happening. But Robert Goulet plays himself crooning yeah, this it's, thing. It's, it's astonishing. That, it's astonishing. It's, it's fucking it's amazing. Pure like Vegas slash Atlantic City, like trash culture in the best possible way. Of course he's in there singing. It's astonishing. But this movie has so many great scenes. I mean, I, I was just howling with delight throughout so much of it. But you had this great scene where Burt Lancaster is kind of doing a peeping Tom routine, watching Susan Sarandon do this nightly ritual where she comes home, she takes her top off and she washes off with lemon juice. And we're never quite sure why. And it's like this beautiful, like erotic ritual. But as it turns out, it's a very practical thing. She works around seafood all day and she comes home. It's the only way to get the smell off, which we learned later on. But prior to that, it's like this great mystery that he's trying to unlock or explore. But as he watches her, he immediately goes downstairs, gets into bed with the widow. And she's like, like, what's going on? Like, what's gotten into you? And like the dog's growling. And then like Burt Lancaster is <laughs> making love to her from behind. And she, she's like, oh my. But I just, I mean, it's just so great that, this old guy, he's not going to like 
do something gross like jerk off while watching Susan's Rand. And he's got like an, a, an outlet. And of course, he's got this old widow who every once in a while, they they enjoy a little roll in the hay and they have a, an intimacy and a, and a bond. And at, toward the end, they've become like a, a, a unit. They're not married or anything like that, but the way they're all dressed up and walking around together, they, their, their relationship's remarkable. Yeah, you know, what I also is- like how, uh, I mean, it is, you don't have a ton of characters, but I like how it, it is kind of a small it feels like a like a pretty personal story oh yeah i mean it's and it's a great character work it's not necessarily strong on plot but has so many great character beats so many great moments or even little moments like when the guy from scanners whose head explodes pops up and he but like that's one of those actors (laughs) where you can't see him in anything else like dude like when's your head gonna explode it's gonna explode like any second well that's what was so weird about this movie is that the exteriors are shot in jersey but the interiors were all shot in sound stages in montreal which you know i mean movies do that all the time i'm not so sure if if that was a common practice to move a movie up to canada to save money because that really was like the 1990s 1990s-ification of the east coast was shooting in 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 montreal so it's weird because we didn't even mention michelle piccoli is in this movie too he's got he's great yeah one of the all-time legends in france right and that that's him bringing over you know louis mall bringing over one of guys from the old days and, and and that's kind of amazing um but he doesn't really have a lot to do with uh, he only, pretty much only has to do with susan sarandon her b plot and um it's interesting because i think there was one scene on the boardwalk so piccoli came to new jersey to shoot i think one scene outside the rest were all up in montreal which is why these actors a lot of these guys were canadian day players uh, the guy from Scanners was that, you know, Cronenberg uh, uh, shot his movies in, in Montreal. I think he shot Scanners in Montreal, at least, or if not Toronto. So that's why you have a completely separate ecosystem of actors who are north of the border guys that you won't see them do necessarily uh, American films because they're just such a booming industry up there. And this is an example of that. Did you guys find the Elias Codius cameo in this? Because I couldn't find them anywhere. No, I think he was I, supposed to be in this. Yeah, that's it. Well, it's credited as such. Yeah, it's it's. I think, I think it's it's so obscure that it's just got to be in the background somewhere. You know. Yeah, and what I really like is like um, speaking of the outside scenes. Like there's uh, there's one or two scenes where they do this. They go from one uh, plot line to the next by kind of zooming out and from uh, above to people walking uh downstairs on the boardwalk this that was really cool as well yeah yeah there's no there's no shortage of great this, this is i think this was my favorite movie of all of my watch and it was a surprise and it's like i i grew up with this in the background i knew that this was quote unquote and it, a movie that adults liked and it wasn't for kids if i was busy watching like tron and 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 things like that in 1980 yeah, you need a little age on you to enjoy this and you need enough age on you where you've experienced disappointment and things like that but like yeah bert lancaster said um a part like that especially at my age happens every 10 years if you're lucky like he he knew this was for somebody in the twilight of his career th- these parts just don't come along and so yeah he but he just crushed it he gave he gave it his all and like when he's getting pulled off the bus and he's like you see that woman like i held her in my arms and i was making love to her and like <laughs> he just he's got so much passion and yeah burt lancaster is one of the all-time greats like the fact that he was able to produce something like sweet smell success and give himself a part like that which obviously uh, scurry and i talked about in our uh, movies that define new york short film on youtube and yeah, I, I I can't say enough positive things about Lancaster's career. Yeah, it's hard to believe that. Um, I mean, it's such a sentimental choice that On Golden Pond sort of swept the Oscars for this year. And I, I haven't seen it. I have to confess I haven't seen it. But Me it's either. like, I don't know if it's just the kind of movie I'm going to be into just based on sight alone. It's a great um, movie to watch when you're staying with your grandparents when you're eight and they, <laughs> and, they, and they won't let you watch what you really want to watch, like Escape from New York. So you watch On Golden Pond instead. <laughs> Fair enough. 
All right. Well, just in the interest of time, let's push on to one of the most famous uh, two people talking. Mean, quite literally, this is the two people talking in a room template. My dinner with Andre. You see, that's why I think that people have affairs. I mean, you know, in the theater, if you get good reviews, uh, you feel for a moment that you've got your hands on something. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a good feeling. But then that feeling goes quite quickly. And once again, you don't know quite what you should do next. What'll happen? Well, have an affair, and up to a certain point, you can really feel that you're on firm ground. You know, it's a sexual conquest to be made. There are different questions. <laughs> Does she enjoy the ears being nibbled? How intensely can you talk about Schopenhauer at some elegant French restaurant? Whatever nonsense it is. It's all, I think, to give you the semblance that there's firm earth. Well, have a real relationship with a person that goes on for years. That's completely unpredictable. Cut off all your ties to the land, and you're sailing into the unknown, into uncharted seas. I mean, you know, people hold on to these images of father, mother, husband, wife, again, for the same reason, because they seem to provide some firm ground. But there's no wife there. What does that mean, a wife, a husband, a son? A baby holds your hands, and then suddenly there's this huge man lifting you off the ground, and then he's gone. Where's that son? The life of a playwright is tough. finally came in, Debbie was home from work, and I told her everything about my dinner with Andre. Matthias, what are your thoughts on this film where, I, th I feel like this is one of those movies that a lot of people have heard of, even mm -hmm. if they haven't watched, I mean, it's even like a gag at the end of Waiting for Guffman, like the My Dinner with Andre playset and things like that. But uh, what are your thoughts on uh, well, the, yeah. 
The on Wallace Shawn and Andre. Oh, I'm totally blanking on Gregory, his last name. Gregory. Gregory. Yeah, Gregory. Yeah. Andre Gregory. The only thing I knew about it was the community parody episode that they did for Abed's birthday, uh, where they basically redo the whole movie. But yeah, as a parody of it, um, it was very talky, uh, and a lot. It's what we we call Sveifrech, uh, but I'm not sure what the the. It's very much like talking about ideas and, and philosophy and, and that kind of thing. Um, and it, it's hard to even like really keep up with it. I feel like probably with rewatches, when you can kind of zero in on some of the ideas, it might be better. But like for the first time, it feels like such an overload on uh, in terms of information that you're uh, being given, like and all these weird stories. I was kind of reminded of that movie uh, we watched for the Soderbergh episode, uh, Grey's Anatomy. Which was kind of similar. Oh yeah, uh, but that I gotcha. was funny. I mean, for me, serious, what it reminds yeah. me of is like My Night at Mods by Eric Romer yes. or Romare. And but I think I prefer My Night at Mods. But I do like My Dinner with Andre in the sense that it is a genuine time capsule of a time in New York mm-hmm. where plays mattered, the written word mattered, and you have these people who their their lives are devoted to acting and producing and directing plays and talking about plays and like what does it mean to be a person of letters versus someone who's actually trying to experience life stripped away of all pretense and mm-hmm. i initially had your similar a similar reaction to you where when andres is ranting and raving about all these hippy dippy bullshit experiences he had <laughs> i was like I'm going to fucking murder this guy. I can't handle all these, these like improvisational dance sequences he's describing. But then of course, Wallace Shawn starts pushing back and he's like, you know what? Like, I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. Like I love like sitting down and reading my Charlton Heston autobiography and having my coffee and writing mm-hmm. my plays. And you know, it's a, it's a life. And I think eventually they kind of arrive somewhere in the middle, but when Wallace Shawn finally starts pushing back, that's when the movie really comes to life for me. So the yes. second half for me, the movie just soared. The first half, I was thinking nothing but thoughts of violence. <laughs> yeah, Which is probably not the goal like, of the movie. I went but. to this cult in Poland and I got buried alive naked. It, it's like- No, I, went, I, 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 was, I was drowning. I was dying. I was clawing my <laughs> eyes out, ripping my ears out. I could not listen to a, a one more word of Andre's yeah. rants, but uh, scurry am I, am I off base in my- animosity and <laughs> agitation well let me let me i know because me and me and matthias watched this this we've been we've been doing a, a two-man watch oh and with with a skype connection talking about the movie so we we've you know we've watched like a hundred movies like this uh it, it is definitely not the easiest movie to sort of like watch simultaneously and have a comment dialogue because it is so certainly dialogue heavy but i i, I saw this about eight or nine years ago for the first time and have you so I, I assume you've seen it earlier you've seen it before this right no, this is the first time I've seen it. Oh, this it's is the first time you saw it. Okay. It's been in my radar for 25 years, ever since I saw uh, Waiting for Guffman. I was like, you know, at a certain point, I'm going to have to see it. But it's funny how I, both this and My Not at Miles have been on my radar ever since I got interested in movies. But because it's people talking in rooms, I always postpone. But I'm thrilled that I finally have got both these movies under my belt. You knocked them off. You know what's funny? My Night at Mods was one of those movies that was on my radar for a long time. And it took me like four tries where before I got through it without falling asleep. <laughs> uh, well, that, I had a different experience. The first time I saw my Night of Mods, I was just riveted. I, I, I just yeah. fell in love with it. I also love it for a sight for me. But yeah, uh, I kept uh, turning it on when I was already tired. So it's not completely the movie. No, stuff. yeah. You don't want to put it on at two in the morning when you're like cuddling up in bed or anything like that. No. But I mean, I, I love this movie the first time I saw it. And I too had the, like, like I, I think that the, the, the listener, if they have not seen this movie, 
<clears throat> excuse me, and I'm sure many of them have, and just as many probably have not, this movie is sort of the ultimate New York jerk-off intellectual movie punchline of all time. I mean, it has this enormous reputation for being exactly that. People who have not seen it, but they talk about it, and they're not wrong about what it is. Um, you know, the thing is, when you watch it, you have one feeling or another about it. Either you respond to it, like, I, I'm, I'm all in. Maybe you're 50-50. It's got to win you over. You know, the, it does. It, by, the, by the end, I felt like I'm watching one of the essential movies about New York culture. Yeah, and, and that's the, the thing is, is like there's this moment, you know, like in uh, Annie Hall when, when, when Woody Allen grabs Marshall McLuhan, uh, you know, on the line and sort of says, here, talk, you know, you talk to him about it. And then he looks at the camera, he says, don't you wish all conversations could end like this? It's a dialogue with this, yeah, rich intellectual taste where people were well read, like you said, people of letters. And I also, I mean, I think that growing up outside of the New York area, you know, only 50 miles from New York, but looking at New York as this massive cultural edifice, this was the sort of Jewish uh, upper class intellectualism that I was, you know, just how do you get in there? How do you do that? What do you have to read? What kind of school do you have to go to? What kind of family do you have to be from to chip in there and get a piece of it? And I thought that that- It helps if you start out really rich. Like Wallace Shawn, he's like, yeah, we like when I was a kid, I was, I was an aristocrat. All I thought about was art and music and books. Yeah. And now I'm an adult and all I think about is money. Like it, the, the intro voiceover by Wallace Shawn is some of the best writing of the movie. Yeah, it is. And, and and Wally Sean, people who don't know, his dad... Conceivable, which he says in this movie, like, two thirds yeah. way through. <laughs> his, his dad was William Sean. He was the publisher of the New Yorker magazine. Not the first publisher, but certainly the most famous and one of the most enduring. And so his dad was the curator of American New York intellectual letters through the middle middle part of the century. I mean, it is it is a legacy that any son would have trouble living up to. And I guess he, he grew up... I think with as much wealth, I mean, that's the thing. You used to be able to publish things like the uh, the New Yorker, which I think before even Condé Nast owned it, they maybe bought it in the 70s or the 70s. I don't remember when the fuck Condé Nast bought it. But the thing is, it was enough to live on. It was enough to be wealthy. And, and again, to have salons filled with painters and oboe players and artists and international dignitaries and all these interesting people. And that was- It's the era of the book launch parties where people would spend yeah. serious money whining and dining authors and sending them around the world to, you know, to do readings and meet with their fans. And it's just a world that has largely disintegrated. I mean, quite literally now, there's no theater of any kind of New York because of fucking COVID. <laughs> and, and not only that, but there's an aristocracy. This is part of that uh, that New York. When, when people take shots- The aristocracy of talent in particular. You've got the aristocracy of wealth, but the aristocracy of talent is- equally intimidating and tough to break into. When people take shots at New York from the outside and they, and they you know, they demonize it as being an, an other, you know, anathema to the American fabric. It's like, I think it's stuff like this that they point at. Not just not just the movie itself, but the people who are in it, who live such a life of ideas. And you listen to Andre Gregory, who, I mean, he had an interesting life. I mean, this guy, his parents were running away from the, from the, the German war machine. He was like born in Paris. And, you know, he went to America, he grew up, and they were refugees practically, and he became almost like the waspiest of wasp people. He went to Harvard and only did things that were super weird and intellectual and performance already with his theater group, The Manhattan Project. You know, and it's like that that friendship between Wally Shawn and Andre Gregory. I mean, it'll pay off because the last movie in this set is is Mal's last movie, uh, Vanya on 42nd Street. But it's like that's a real that's a friendship. The kind of it doesn't really happen in film. That that kind of creative, at least being in you know filmmaking, because it is so non filmmaking. It's so theory. I think that I said theatery, not theory. Yeah, but it, it, St bordering on stagey, where there's a certain type of acting 
where you're performing to people in a you just in a, in a theater, you, you have to act for everybody in the auditorium. You're not acting for the camera, which might be two feet from your face. So it just gives you a certain theatricality that some people find a little off-putting and otherworldly. And I imagine you get you see, you see a hell of a lot more of that in Banya and 42nd Street, but it is a style of acting that's quintessential New York. And and Louis Maul being the guy to direct it. I mean, him being so cinematic and being so humanist. I mean, it makes a lot of sense in some cases, but I always thought like, I, I thought of John Sayles when he makes his movies. His movies are so non-cinematic. They're so non-visual. They're stories of ideas and people. They're like novels that are filmed. Like, like Alamo Bay. Like, like Al- Alamo Bay, when I was watching, I kept thinking, this is a John Sayles. This movie. is a John Sayles like, movie. Like, yeah. No wonder Scooby likes this movie. It's a fucking John Sayles movie. And and John Sayles worked with DPs like Robert Richardson. He worked with DPs like uh, Haskell Wexler, guys who were clearly more talented than the movie in front of them because there was just no opportunity to exercise that visual thing. And yet, I think it's a great challenge to a guy like Mal to make two guys sitting diagonal at a table at a banquet in a restaurant somehow dynamically, visually dynamic with the help of editing. Matthias, do you have any favorite lines or bits where the movie? Uh, Got you. Uh, honestly, I, I I just remember the mock bur- uh, burial story, and I kept thinking, like, what is this guy getting himself into? This is so crazy. Well, what <laughs> I like is how yeah. when Wally gets there, he thinks like he's not really interested in having this dinner, but he's like, I'm just right. going to ask him questions, and the questions initially they feel so forced and artificial, but it's all part of his scheme to kind of like. It's on purpose when he's like, ah, oh, so tell me more about this or tell me more about this. He's being polite. Mm-hmm. And uh, you yeah. can, we've all been in situations where just through, through gritted teeth, you're trying to be polite. But I think my favorite bit by far is when Andre's having this, like, he has all these theories about how people are no longer invested in a great book or a great play because the mm-hmm. world's just so crazy from his point of view. Like, you need, like, additional stimulation. And he says... Things don't affect people the way they used to. I mean, it may very well be that 10 years from now, people will pay $10,000 in cash to be castrated just to be, in order to be affected by something. And I just started out. But I feel like he might have been very prophetic about 2020 because I think we all live in heightened states of overstimulation from too much news, too much chaos, too much bad news, too much adversarial bickering online. And it does make you numb. Like, can you sit down and just read Dostoevsky, or can you sit down and watch my dinner with Andre when what you really are craving is people screaming at each other and calling each other racist and all that kind of crap? Like, we live in such a heightened state of agitation. Is there even room for this world anymore in our lives? And I feel like now probably there's an argument to be made that we need it more than ever because we need something that calms us fucking down and lowers the temperature of the room because all social media does is drive us fucking crazy. And he was talking also about uh, something about like people turning into machines or something like that. Like we're, we're becoming more uh, like hamsters in a wheel kind of a thing. Yeah, I will say, I mean, it is, it does feel uh, more difficult now to like sit down to read a book when you can watch a movie and it goes faster and you still experience a story or something or you can like. log on to twitter for five minutes and watch people point yeah. fingers at each other and call each other names like, Woo-hoo! <laughs> and then you can you know mm-hmm. get your licks in i mean it's just it's such a short like short attention span existence that so many people crave and for me reading books or watching a movie like my dinner with andre it's like giving your brain vitamins or nutrition it's yeah. like when i sit in the bathtub at night and read books i feel like i'm taking my brain to the gym i'm it's the discipline of focusing on something for half hour to an hour without any distractions. So I think there's more of a need for this kind of culture than ever before. And sadly, it just will seem increasingly irrelevant to so many people who only have time for 
pure confrontation they who live in like a, an 18 hour a day news cycle of hate and anger and that's what they crave and that's what they want because they get that adrenaline rush but yeah my dinner with andre for me i felt like a planet that had been watered after watching it well you know what the irony is is that andre gregory i mean you talk about all this formal bashing and 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 future casting you know andre gregory was the theater guy um, you know, he did stuff at the public and he did stuff with his own group called the Manhattan Project. His whole thing was destroying the proscenium arch. Like his his whole thing was to take theater out of the box and screw around with it, have it shock people, jump up on your lap, yelling weird stuff like that. You know, he he never did anything straight. I'm actually that's not true. He probably did a lot of things straight, but I think that he was more interested in just doing some weird ass fucking shit. And that's like Wallace Shawn saw him. I think they did something called Alice in Wonderland, which is like God forbid we'd ever even recognize it by looking at it. You need to be a theater egghead to understand how Andre Gregory was blowing it up. And that's like that's how they started this partnership. You know, and it, it, it keeps up with like, you know, Vanya at the end, it's the same type of thing where it's like, pull it out of, you know, pull it off the stage, put it in the orchestra pit, put it in a dilapidated theater, make it look strange, have the audience sit right there next to all these people. And, you know, it's like if anybody was qualified to talk about how attention spans were bifurcated and things were getting weird entertainment wise, it was Andre Gregory's because he was the guy doing exactly that. Do you think they were pitching Louis Mal on this script when Wallace Shawn was an extra on Atlantic City? Because he pops up for a wa- as a waiter for like five seconds, but like that's the beginning of their relationship. It must have been because Sean, Sean was already a guy. He, I don't think that's an accident. I think that's like one of those, um, you know, a celebrity cameo. Even though nobody knew who Wallace Shawn was, and I think that was Mal putting a friend in. And yeah, they probably already started. They already started talking about doing this movie beforehand. Because Wallace Shawn doesn't really get his movie career up and running until like a year or two before this. Like he pops up, was it Annie Hall or Manhattan where he pops? It's Manhattan. Yeah. When he, when Woody Allen learns that this is the guy who's like the devastating lover that Diane Keaton keeps talking about. It's like, this guy? It's like the stud with like a 12-inch horse cock? Like what the hell? (laughs) That was the first time I remember seeing Wallace Shawn in anything. Yeah, I mean, and he becomes more of a household name as the 80s roll on. It wasn't 80. 87. When was Princess Bride? 87? 87. Let's see. I've got it open. Yeah, 87. And of course, yeah, Vizzini, he just becomes a pop culture icon. Yeah, and now, yeah you say inconceivable. It's like, oh, is that, that bald guy from Princess Bride? And now he's a fucking dinosaur, you know, in, in Pixar movies, oh, yeah. right? Or the Incredibles when he's like, you know, they're penetrating the bureaucracy. And like, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's so good. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. I love how he's been able to have his intellectual life but at the same time get these massive paydays through pixar and that's the best of both worlds where you find a way to leverage your intellect and your and your like your talent where you get the big paydays but then it gives you the freedom to go off and do the definition of truly pretentious work like my dinner with andre (laughs) in spite of it being so pretentious i just I, I, the world, the world of movies, and the world of uh, the world of theater, and the world of letters needs movies like this, just to remind people that this slice of life exists. And I feel like it's always on. Probably even then, they're saying this world's on the verge of going it's extinct. And in 2020, it seems to have less cultural relevance than ever. <clears throat> Jamie, I meant to ask you, by the way. You know, this was the irony was this was shot in Richmond, right? 
I know that a ton of it was shot in Virginia. It was shot at, at the hotel. The Jefferson Hotel. I don't know where that is in relation to where oh, you grew I've, up. I've stayed at the Jefferson a million times. When we were working on Hannibal, the Jefferson's where we kept all the uh, the cast and crew. It's the nicest hotel in Richmond by far. Not, and there was, um, not, not 1980. Downtown Richmond has gone through ups and downs. And there was a time where it was per capita the murder capital of the United States in the 1980s. Really? So, <laughs> yeah, Richmond is a strange place. But, like, my sister's... The night of my sister's rehearsal dinner, the after party was at the Jefferson. So yeah, I didn't realize it was at the Jefferson, but yeah, I've been there a million times. But I've had Christmas breakfast there and things okay. like that. Yeah, if you want uh, old school kind of Virginia decor, then that's the the, the place to go. Not New York Jewish down. intellectuals getting at each other. Yeah, but... there's not a lot of like New York Jewish intellectual <laughs> subculture in uh, Virginia. It's kind of a different thing. But Matthias, Scurry and I have been sucking up all the oxygen in the room. Give us the pitch for Alamo Bay in 1985. Uh, was, wasn't Crackers in, in there between or no? Yeah, we're not really talking about Crackers. We don't have that no, kind of time no. right now. I, when y'all give me the pitch on which movies to watch, that was oh, not okay, included, no. so I have not seen it. Oh, but if I you want to give a shout out to Crackers, by all means. Uh, yeah, um, if people have time to watch it, it's pretty funny. Uh, it's a, Well, it's basically a bunch of idiots trying to uh, rob one of their friends. Uh, I thought it was funny, but... Uh, also, Wallace Shawn was in that. Uh, Sean Penn was in it, doing a country accent for no reason. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Jack Warden was in. It, it was fun, uh, but we'll leave that then. Um, Alamo Bay. Uh, well, I sent an article this morning, but it's uh, it's about '70s Texas and the fact that a lot of Vietnamese uh, people after the war came over to Texas to work there in the shrimping industry. And the movie is about tension uh, between them and the natives uh, who feel like, oh, you know, these people are drive are putting us out of business. Well, some would argue that the natives in Texas go back much further. Like, I mean, Texas right. is a strange thing where you got the indigenous folks, mm -hmm. then you got the Mexican folks, mm -hmm. then you got the Texans, and now you've got the Vietnamese arriving. So when you get into who are the natives, you have to be very specific. Good point. Good point. Yeah, the, the white people. Uh, white basically. people. That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it was interesting. I'd never heard of this story. Um, it was based on, like, basically an, uh, an article that Louis Mal saw somewhere. I think it was the article that we uh, read, maybe, but, or maybe that was a new one. No, that was a, an, an article looking back on it. But yeah, it's, uh, it was a, it was an interesting story. Uh, I've, I've always been a fan of like Vietnam, Vietnam war movies. Of, of course, this is not about the war itself, but, uh, but it is so much about yeah. the aftermath. Yes. And what I found fascinating about it was how so many of the Vietnamese that fled South Vietnam mm -hmm. or fled Saigon embraced so many of the values <clears throat> that you would think would make them an automatic, perfect fit in America. Like, right. This character, he loves cowboy hats. He wants to be a success. He wants to right. work hard. He hates communists. Like he lived in the woods for like weeks, living off grass to stay away from the communists. So on the surface, like, oh my God, that guy sounds like as, a, as American as apple pie with a slice of cheese on top. Mm -hmm. But as he learns, it's not quite as easy as that. And in 2020, politics and movies so often can be so binary and black and white and just so simplistic. And the, I think the genius of this movie is getting into the details and getting into the nuance and how the people who live in this town, they're not 
like it's not a uniform culture and they all look and many of them look at the Vietnamese in a different way. And I just, it made me realize just how juvenile a lot of our quote unquote political movies are made where you have a very specific message from a very specific point of view. And Louis Mao allows this to organically live and breathe. And you really feel like you know this town and just also casting Ed Harris as this loathsome guy, like having this handsome kick-ass like leading man playing a guy who initially seems to have some redeeming qualities, but has fewer and fewer as the movie goes on. I thought that was a really interesting choice to have his real life wife, Amy Madigan in there. And mm -hmm. yeah, I had never heard of this movie. I had no idea. And it's the one I was least looking forward to going into this, but I was enthralled by it. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised I'd never heard of this. It's kind of like uh, we recently watched another Vietnam war movie that uh, most people have never heard of called off limits, which was also really good. Another eighties movie with uh, Willem Dafoe and Gregory Hines. And it's weird, like some of these movies are, they've just kind of disappeared, but they're really good. Um, well, Mr. Discovery, I know that you are the John Sayles guy. We did a giant episode about him, but I feel like this is his terrain where you've got a cultural clash, a racial clash, not really a clash in terms of class, but definitely a situation where you've got limited resources, limited opportunity, and things get really ugly. So uh, yeah, what, what, what about this flick jumps out at you? Yeah, speaking of as American as apple pie, uh, when you get the poor people fighting each other rather than shooting up, that is definitely uh, the kind of thing that is the John Sayles recipe. Yeah, there's a lot here. The only thing that is not John Sayles, which I think is the gunfight at the end, as much as John Sayles has had some gunplay in some movies, um, it does. There's this real sympathy of the outsider looking at everybody. And it's like, it, it, and what I love is that Ed Harris's character, for some reason, his name is Shang, which I'm sure was short for Shanghai. I don't, I don't know. It's a backstory. They don't tell you that, but I really like that. And it's just, there's a dude named Shang. Uh, it's yeah. just, that's, as, that's as redneck as it gets. Just some it's, made up <laughs> Exactly. And, and, you know, he, for a guy from Jersey, he plays Texas pretty well, you know, and, and Ed Harris is not the tallest guy. So there's something about him being a stocky, guy just you know dripping with nervous anxious energy and anger and and all that stuff really plays out uh you know that's the weird thing is that in the end like you said he winds up kind of becoming a bad guy where it's not seen it doesn't seem so obvious from frame one you kind of think the movie's going to go with him and uh you know you wonder well because he's starting to experience uh, this this huge financial insecurity because the, the shrimp industry outside of, i think it's galveston corpus it's outside of corpus yeah the the town of alamo <clears throat> bay is made up but the i think the real life story was galveston yeah but it's that area in, in the in the uh, gulf the gulf area the gulf coast of texas and so you know that's pretty much a lot of shrimp money out there and so the vietnamese are catching shrimp uh and and yeah like he emblem he's emblematic of that let's just pick on the guy who's one social rung lower than us yeah pure john sales territory um I, yeah, this movie is very successful it does have one big flaw that i found and and I, as i was reading through the reviews on letterbox they said that you know ultimately it goes through the prism of looking at this either through ed harris's eyes or through amy madigan's eyes there is right. a vietnamese character played by this actor who named it uh, ho nguyen who i don't think and he was actually a non-actor. It was his first movie. Yeah, he was like a DNA researcher from somewhere in, in, in Houston. I can't remember where they got him from. But they they wanted a non-actor. They wanted a guy who spoke Vietnamese. They wanted an American actor. They got him. And he's, you know, he has all the hallmarks of being a non-actor, uh, which is to say not bad. It's just there's a very natural performance from him. Um, but you can't you can't really put him at the cornerstone of a movie because he can't give you a fully fledged charismatic performance, especially he, Amy Madigan and Ed Harris and and what is it Donald Moffat as as 
her dad. I mean, these, these are yeah, he's great as well. Yeah, from yeah. Her, everybody loves him from the thing. Yeah, I mean, these are these are you know actors have been around for a while. Ed Harris was just coming off of um, uh, Right Stuff, you know, a year or two beforehand. I mean, he wasn't a, he wasn't a household name, but he was you know edging towards the idea of leading manitude. Um, so it's like this guy's not strong enough to put the whole movie around him. So, but I mean, Amy Madigan is really good. It kind of reminds you. That at one point you used to see her in a lot of solid, either leading or supporting actor. Speeds fire, baby. Yeah, she was incredible. I just saw <laughs> yes. that like in the last two years, uh, and and yeah, that really holds up. And she's great in it. She's a tough. Well, I mean, she's like, say something nice. He's like, you got a fat ass for a thin woman. I was like, yeah, baby, <laughs> that's good old redneck pillow talk. I mean, the, the, some of the photography in this, and it's like I can see that. Um, Again, Louis Malle being the outsider. This is the documentarian of him. Uh, his documentary documentary sense. What, what, I don't even know how to pronounce that word. He comes in, he parachutes in, he looks at this with a sociologist's eye and makes a movie, maybe more so than even Pretty Baby, where he went to a strange place and was trying to recreate a period. This isn't necessarily a period. This is like five years before. Also, this was recent history for the locals. You're going into a place that just recently had shootings and people burning each other's boats, like racial violence, cultural violence, like... It got as ugly as ugly gets. And it's like people talk about race all day, every day today. But like you want to get into like like when you get into a a small local situation, this is like everybody's worst nightmare of racial tensions boiling over and going to the place of violence. And they were shooting in and around where these people were still alive and still on the scene. So they had to like they're tap dancing across a bunch of laser beams trying to make this movie. But what I found so interesting is how I said the kids of all these people that are involved were totally like in one generation, you had a Vietnamese quarterback in this town. It's like yeah. a Vietnamese quarterback. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? But like, uh, but he what, spoke with a Texas accent and so on and so forth. I think it takes balls of steel to tackle a subject that's so raw and so recent. It's not like they waited decades. This happened and then when I made the movie and I just, I can't imagine when you're dealing with the fucking KKK, which was alive and well at that time, I just, I'm, I have a, a tremendous admiration for a filmmaker willing to grab the, quite literally grab the bull by the horns and explore this topic right in the location where it took place. Yeah, there's no timidity to this at all. And that's, again, him being a sociologist and making a movie about something that happened. You know, I, another movie me and, me and Matthias watched recently was uh, The Intruder. Uh, Roger Corman's The Intruder. Oh, yeah. And the shooting was a lot. This, you know, uh, they went to Alabama where these things had happened and they were restaging essentially what was Klan rallies and a burning cross and a firebombing in the towns where these things happened. And so Corman and William Shatner, they knew they had a limited amount of time to get it right because this was right down the block from where these things actually happened. And so they said on the last day of shooting that, they did the cross burning, got the fuck out of town. They went, they ran across the state border and went as far as they could. And it's like sometimes when you're making a movie, you could be sending off a powder keg, but it takes some balls. I mean, Corman was doing it more because he was a little more experimental and the rules weren't, you know, there weren't as many rules there for him. But I think Maul was the visitor, just like almost like tap dance, like you said, tap dancing between laser beams, but also almost above it a little bit, parachuting in. I'm not American. I'm not one of you. I'm a Frenchman. So I have this this thousand yard uh, above view of the whole thing. And I think I can tell a story just with a little more cl- clarity and a little more level-headed than you well, guys also, lived it. I, he has little details that I think some lesser filmmakers in 2020 would not include. Like there's this wonderful scene in the grocery store where a Vietnamese woman doesn't speak English is getting tons of pushback from the grocery store clerk who she's pissed because she knows that Ed Harris is cheating on her. So she's already upset. She's like a raw open wound. And she decides, well, the only way I'm going to feel better is by telling this girl she doesn't belong, giving her shit, making fun of her for not being able to speak English. And then you have this kindly gentle, like gentle old man step and say, 
hey miss like i i think uh there's, there's a misunderstanding here and like that the showing how every single white person in this town doesn't treat the vietnamese the exact same way like i think that would be missing from a lot of filmmakers today or like later on or actually earlier when somebody stops by to meet with the vietnamese fishermen to say look it agitates the locals when you do things like if you have a gizmo that you're throwing out of your engine like don't throw it in the bay because it tears up their nets like you're just you're asking for trouble or don't go out fishing at night when they're not fishing because first of all first of all it's illegal but it just it raises tension like why don't you try shark fishing like just all those little details I just feel like that are missing from our conversations on Twitter that are missing from our conversations today. As y'all, most people know on this podcast, I avoid politics like the plague on the whole, but for people who do like interesting approaches to tackling very, not controversial, but just subject matter where it's very easy for people to, for their emotions to boil over like in a flash, in a heartbeat, I think they'll be caught off guard by just how interesting Louis Mouth's approach is. And as Scurry mentioned, it does have a kind of a cheesy shootout at the end, but in the real life historical event, they were bombing each other's boats and shooting at each other. And so it got fucking, as, like I said, as ugly as ugly gets. So And that one photo in the article uh, that I sent, they literally have that as a shot in the movie. Yeah, the like flotilla, the boat, the boat with, coming uh, in with the yeah. flags, yeah. yeah. Yeah, people wearing KKK robes yeah. Riding on boats with rifles. Like it yeah. seems comical and over the top, but it fucking happened. So it's the worst circle line tour imaginable. Yeah, I mean the slight twist, it would be like a uh, like a Mel Brooks joke out of like blazing saddles, but yeah. it's not. It's it's deadly serious. Yeah, where are all the white women at? Yeah. It is just yeah. it is to, <laughs> just to the left of that. You're not wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. It's yeah, it's it's it blazing saddles with with without the jokes. <laughs> all right, wanna move on to damage? I ought to introduce myself. I'm Anna Barton. I've heard about you. I'm sure she's very nice. Stephen Fleming thought he had everything life could offer. Hello, Martin. Hi, Dad. Any news? He was wrong. Got a new girlfriend. This is Anna, my father. Nice to meet you. Hello. And look up. Yes, Miss Snow here. I'm a friend of the minister's. Give me your address. I'll be there in an hour. My childhood wasn't all wonderful. Roots aren't that great unless something else comes with them. Like what? Passion. All through dinner, I just wanted to touch you. I don't trust her. I've just asked Anna to marry me, and I'm pleased to say she said yes. Of course, he's not Anna's usual type. Mother. Are you sure she's really what you want? You don't know her. When we're alone, she's like no one else. I can't see past you. You must never worry. I'll always be there. Don't follow us. Yeah, hello. Nobody. I've never had feelings like this. I have to get them into some sort of order. You must get out of the way. Who are you? Who are you? Not enough. Not enough for you. Do you think I would have married Martin if I couldn't be with you? Why didn't you kill yourself? You should have killed yourself. It's the end for us. With love comes risk. With obsession. Martin! Martin! Comes damage. 
I thought you could control life. There are things you can't control. Let's get sexy. Damage, 1992. Uh, this is a movie that my stepmother, she used to always tell me about, like, her breaking point for provocative films was Blue Velvet and Damage. Those are the two movies mm. that just really upset her. She did, did not like them. And when I told him I found them to be interesting movies, that would just made her face go ashen. But what is going on was in the wonderful of world Irons of being naked in this? Well, I'm sorry, what did you say? Was it because of Jeremy Irons being naked in this? No, I think it's the uh, how things end up for his very posh son. Yeah, uh, toward, that was kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that the accent of the son of Jeremy Irons, it's totally appropriate in that he is the son of a of a minister. But I can't deny that when he falls and dies, that I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Man, you're annoying the shit out of me. This entire movie, that overly sensitive, <laughs> overly cultured, overly open minded. It's like you, dude, you're just way too kind and way too sophisticated. Like you, you just you, you got to go. This is a harsh, brutal world. Well, Matthias, you want to lay it out again? You do such a good job describing uh, yeah. this far. Yeah, I'm doing my best. Uh, yeah, it's about uh, Jeremy Irons plays a, a cabinet member in uh, British uh, government. I think the minister of uh, environment. The environment. Environment. Yes. Yeah, and uh, basically he sees his son's girlfriend once, and then decides that he's going to have a, an affair with her. Uh, and uh, in the end, uh, things don't end up working out very well. Uh, <laughs> I, I got to say, when his son dies, that was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. What, Jeremy, so, N- Irons buck-ass nude running down the stairs? Well, no, but mostly... With ding-a-ling like, flopping he, back and forth? Yeah, he, well, actually, in my in my version, it was uh, censored. I didn't see anything. Uh, oh, oh, shit. Yeah, that's right. We had two different versions. I forget. Yeah, I had, I had, you can't watch Damage censored. Damage, that's the whole point of watching Damage. <laughs> well, it was plenty to see. Just no Jeremy Irons uh, dong. Snake, snake out on Jeremy Irons. Yeah, I, yeah. Sh- I showed up for the Jeremy Irons dong. <laughs> I felt cheated. Um, but yeah, it was, he walks backwards, right? And he walks backwards, catches his dad and his fiance at that point, walks backwards and then into the railing of the staircase and flips over backwards and falls down four flights of stairs. It, it's like, really? Like, uh, uh, it just, it looked so, I, I actually laughed when I saw that. That was so ridiculous. Well, I think if it had um, been a character that I cared about, I, I might have yes. felt great tragedy. I just, for um, my own, I, anything. as people who know, like, or who follow this podcast know, I, I occasionally just develop random, inappropriate, mm-hmm. out of proportion animosity towards yeah. people. And that's, <laughs> he just happened. <laughs> and he, he happened to be yeah. the uh, object of my ire at that, at that <laughs> moment. So, but uh, I am a Juliet Binoche fan and I'm a Jeremy Irons fan. So, yes. yeah, it was a, uh, it's an interesting movie watching them because, like, there, you said that he decides to have an affair with her, but they have well, so both. little conversation and so little foreplay. Yes. Like they go from meeting each other, gazing upon each other, meeting up, and she just kind of spreads like like this big willing starfish with her arms yeah, like wide. Yeah, she's dead. So yeah, and weird. he just unzips this fly, and they just get right down to it. I was like, well, I don't know. I like a little whining and dining, and I usually like to get kissed before I get fucked. But they sure. just they just get right down to the dirty deed. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. There's two movies on this list that I thought of as they were really emblematic for me. 
Damage was one of them because this was when I first started paying attention to movies right towards the end of high school. And seeing that there was the concept of the high class film, you know, the, the echelons of film weren't just all movies. They were different levels of movies. And these movies were for these people. And these movies were for me. And this was one of those movies because, you know, uh, Jeremy Irons was nominated. Was he nominated for an actor, a Best Actor? I can't, no, I know that uh, Miranda Richardson was definitely nominated for Best Actor. She's so goddamn good. She's, yeah, I yeah. love Miranda Richardson. She's almost like in a different movie for, for some of this. Yeah, it's like, but th- this was that high-class, white-glove, fine-boned, English-type movie that, again, I didn't see, but I knew about it. And I'd seen the, I'd seen the staircase scene back in 92 or 93, so I knew it had this very improbable, you know, weird turn of fate that's not realistic as a capper but also the, the sort of held back Britishisms of it all you know this is like if Hugh Grant was a movie that's what a lot of this stuff would be and like my dinner with Andre was the other version of like again it was emblematic of a time it's like am I inside or outside how do I get to there how do I enjoy this but it's like this is someone else's life somewhere else I don't know so the thing is watching this I kept being struck by the fact that, again, this was written by David Hare, who's a very estimable English playwright. He'd done a lot of like, almost like an Andre Gregory type career, fine English theater, a very, uh, uh, and movie stuff too. He'd done a lot of scripts along the way of a lot of intellectual things. Um, not quite like plot-driven action, but more worlds of ideas and passions between people. I'm not really familiar with his work, but I know he's got a big reputation going on for about 30 or 40 years. So this movie is almost Edwardian, you know, like watching this. This is like watching those Howard's End and Room with a View uh, adaptations, uh, Remains of the Day. There's something about that. The last reserve of the Englishman who doesn't say shit. That idea that John Cleese's character in A Fish Called Wanda keeps talking about all the things Englishmen can't do because it's not permitted. And all he wants to do is live a life of passion. All he wants to do is be unrestrained. You know, and that's John Cleese talking through the script about all the Americans he's met and as the, you know, as at, at, at you know, at the variance with his own childhood and his own life so far. And so there's a little bit, this is that version of the Englishman just being so t- caught inside their skins, inside the class system, inside propriety and nicety. So the, ultimately, the thing that happens that springs this movie open is completely nonverbal. Is that he, Jeremy Irons looks at Juliet Binoche without words and is taken over almost like it's something out of like Lord Byron. He has this tran- transformation inside of him where he's like, I, I, he's reduced to a withering, weeping pile of jelly where he can't live without her. At no point is it ever really understood exactly why that happens. It's just like everything about him changed. His polarity flips from negative to positive, and he just wants to bone, and they don't talk, and it's just this strange animal chemical thing that goes at each other. And that's the, the French part of the movie, a, a fixed, almost like contradicting the English part of the movie. Yeah, the contrast between French and English is remarkable, like when Julia Binoche's character character's mother has lunch with them and she's weird and basically creates a lot of awkward silences but she's very observant and when she's in the car with jeremy irons afterwards she's like look you didn't look at her the entire meal i know what's going on get out of the way <laughs> mm-hmm. and i was like wow like that's the difference the like the english they'll they'll just say everything is fine even as they're like standing on the edge of like an active volcano <laughs> but the french <laughs> they are the, the masters of emotion and passion and so on and so forth. And so she's willing to a see, but also be to acknowledge and discuss things that things just, this will not do, you know, in, in an English society, you just don't discuss these things. You just bury it de- deep, deep, deep until it turns into cancer. And so I loved all that contrast 
or like I love the little line there, like when the, the daughter one book goes, Well, in my experience, people only go to Paris for one thing, and they're like, Oh, like language, like, <laughs> like all those bits are so fucking funny. So I love that contrast. Or when he fucking flies to Paris, calls her, gets her out of bed from she's mm. in bed with his son. Yes. And five minutes later, they're in a doorway. The smell of his son is still all over. Ugh. Having a just rogering her right then and there. It's like, oh, this is dark. He's probably like the smell of his son's saliva is probably still on her shoulder and neck. And it's just like, this is as perverted as he gets you know the uh, matthias took what you what you're saying about the this you know which we keep talking about the staircase at the end the, the climax mm-hmm. of this movie is that rupert what's his name rupert uh graves rupert graves plays his floppy haired son and he is mm-hmm. he's really punchable you really want to like sweep his leg and like just put an elbow into his solar plexus he, he's the kind of englishman you do want to punch because he looks like just you know such a, a, a namby pamby guy but he does he takes this really unrealistic header off of a, a you know five flights down and he you know smashes mm-hmm. his skull open so that's some of the edwardian part was like the climax i think it was of howard's end i think it was one of those helena bonham carter adaptations from the mm-hmm. from the mid 90s this this one kid is like he he it, the, the the climax of the movie is that a bookcase falls on him and he dies. That's the it, it is, but it's like you had to believe this sort of thing and in these English books that would happen. I mean, I I didn't read the books, I saw the movie. Mm. I and, and I thought like, oh, this is preposterous. This is ridiculous. But you have to you have to suspend disbelief in like the English world of petticoats and and you know sleeve garters and and and, and tissues up of up up you know sleeves that somehow you can kill a guy in his peak by dropping a bookcase on him by accident and that is a little bit I think it's it's a it's a plot device that's pulled out of literature it's completely unreal you have to suspend your disbelief but I mean there's a lot about this that you have to suspend your disbelief and the question is do you believe the theme of it do you sort of get the chemistry the actors have or not I mean I think that transcends well, the reality. Well, a question for both of y'all. Not, without prying too deeply into your sex lives, but do you find <laughs> the film to be a turn-on? Matthias, I'll let you go first. Um, well, I mean, Juliette Binoche is certainly not uh, unattractive, but like she has this like a kind of like a bowl haircut kind of thing. And she like the whole movie, she has the same expression. And I didn't really, it didn't seem like she was really into it. I mean, I know she's supposed to be like this cold person who has like issues because she used to sleep with her brother and and this weird guy Peter and there was, there was a lot of baggage there. <laughs> what? Oh yes, yes. The nihilist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Peter Stormare. Yeah. Like oh yeah, that must be exhausting. Yeah. You have a problem. You have, you have a problem with Dinah Kabul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why they <laughs> sent for me. I'm an expert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I I found it hard to see. Um, I guess you can argue like, oh, they're both uh, off, like they're kind of, you know, uh, weird people, maybe a little bit traumatized. So that's why the sex looks kind of weird. But yeah, Well, there's I a lot of weird stuff going on where she's very passive sexually mm-hmm. and he's a little violent sexually. Like he loves to do like, like just like banging her head on the ground. Like you get yeah, it. That, I mean, the movie's called Damage yeah. and these are damaged yes. people. And like, that's not what gets me off. So I, mm-hmm. for me, violence, aggression, all that stuff, I, I don't want it anywhere near my sex life, but it is a we thing did, that a yeah. lot of people are into. And so we, like we, choking we and slapping watched, and all that kind of stuff. So I think yeah. it's very honest about the fact that sometimes people get to get, they're like, they're like two buses colliding into each other. And obviously at a certain point, the damage spills over and starts affecting the people around them. Well, we recently watched Crash 
and I found that to be a hell of a lot sexier than anything in this movie. The the David Cronenberg or the Paul yes, Haggis? Yeah, Cronenberg. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the Paul Haggis one is pretentious nonsense, but the <laughs> David Cronenberg one, one, I think it's one of his finest films. I, I love Crash. You know, I, I tell you what I thought, Jamie. I'll, I'll bring it back to the podcast we did in January about the naughty nineties, and and even to the one you did with Gidget about what makes Gidget fidget. This this was pe- like the period of like bringing your mind back to the feature film business of the nineties. And how there was this, you know, they were destroying all those old sort of um, the moralities of the 70s and 80s with a lot of like disobedience of the 90s. A lot of in-your-face violence and in-your-face performative combative sex to scandalize the viewer. And it's like, it's weird because Louis Maul was older than most of those guys when he's making these movies. And he's not from the same like young Turk generation of filmmakers in the, in the 90s. It's like Paul, Paul Verhoeven was doing his thing with Basic Instinct and I think he was only in his 40s. Pardon me, Matthias, for Hufa, because we're some Dutch people oh, here. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, like, thinking of, like, what Joe Esterhaas' sex looked like just a couple of years after this or around this time period, you know, it's there's nothing sexy about it. This, some of this stuff looked like grappling. It looked like Sambo. You know, they were they were on the... <laughs> they're just grabbing each other's faces. You know, there's, there's almost, like, submission holds and shit like that. It's very weird. You know, and it's like, I don't know what the... Like, I apparently, from what I read, they just gave the actors... They said, you know, do what you want. Get on the ground. You figure it That's out. That's a huge mistake. That's a great way to make people get really upset and yeah. really... And I, I know there's a scene where Julia Pinoche stormed off the set because uh, Jeremy Irons basically very roughly was shoving her his tongue into her mouth. And that's what I was saying earlier, like you need to choreograph sex the same way you do like a fight scene. And that's what Paul Verhoeven did on Basic Instinct. They storyboarded everything. And that way everybody knows precisely what they're going to shoot. Yeah. And you can you can discuss your limits beforehand and get used to it and feel like there's a plan rather than it's yeah. just sort Do's of. Do's and don'ts, safe words, turn ons, turn offs. Everybody's going to know what lines you do not cross, especially when you've got people in states of undress. And also if you're just experiencing the horror of Jeremy Irons and his, like his skeletal form rolling around <laughs> on top of you, like that, that alone is going to traumatize anybody. Well, did either of you guys think of um, uh, Bert, the Bertolucci movie, which this has a lot in common with? And that you just have uh, two, oh, two, in Paris. Yeah, you just have two strangers, which really, they don't right. discuss what they're doing. They just get down to the doing of it. And there's less butter in this movie. But I mean, this isn't the first time this kind of thing has happened, but it doesn't happen very often. And it's usually these older guys. Bertolucci had mm-hmm. something different on his mind than Louis Malle because I think Louis Malle is more of a sociologist. But I mean, there, there is something to it. There, there is a little bit of a commonality in that, you know, we don't have movies that really just rely on you looking at people's faces and trying to read the story that they're telling you and, and you know, just throw the text to the side. The script has nothing to do with it because, you know, Brando in that movie was trying to tell his own story and the writing is just watching the physicality tell a story. And there's something similar here too where they just don't tell you what happened. They'll let you infer, you know, what was the damage that, you know, I mean, Julia Binoche says those things. I mean, she, she's... Mm-hmm. Well, my favorite moment in the movie by far is when her mother busts her right there at the table <laughs> that her fiancé looks just like her brother. Uh-huh. Like, oh, no. <laughs> like When you realize what's going on here, I was like... We are shoot. There is some damage there. There's something strange afoot, and it, it ain't it ain't pretty. And no one's gonna acknowledge it. No one's gonna talk about it. But the mother, delightful girl that she is, mm-hmm. just outs her right there in front of the entire family. And of course, yeah. the English family, they they can't even begin to process this. More Yorkshire pudding, my dear. <laughs> exactly. It's like you just pretend like anything abnormal doesn't exist until the bitter end. But man, Miranda Richardson, though. I love that bit at the end where we see that she's she's now she's got physical damage. She's like, I just I was so upset and had so much emotion that I basically could the only way I could like 
alleviate the pain was by beating myself. And there's Miranda Richardson like this and the crying game or spider, just world-class powerhouse actress. And I think people don't talk about her nearly enough. No, it's, 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 I, I don't know if she took herself out of the game or what, because she's not punching the same weight class as a lot of actors her age. I mean, again, there's more opportunities now than there's ever been before. Um, I just don't know. I mean, and she, she's got that pedigree where she's got all these, she was in all these, these um, really influential movies in the nineties. And yeah, it's a good question. I don't know why you don't see a lot of her, but you will see a lot of other people who were. Well, she does shitloads of TV. These, I mean, if you look over on IMDb the last couple of years, she's got like seven different series. So she works. But in the nineties, she just, she definitely had a special moment where the most interesting filmmakers in the world were, were had her on speed dial. Yeah, she she was beaten that year by uh, Marissa Tomei. That was, the, you know, it was a couple of English movies and My Cousin Vinny. And I, My Cousin Vinny was the upset winner that year that no one expected to win for Best um, su- yeah best Supporting Actress that year. Very, uh, very unusual, obviously. By the way, this movie kind of had uh, some similarities with uh, the other Louis Mal movie we watched, uh, The Lovers, which was uh, Jean Moreau having an affair. And at the end of the movie, she actually runs off with some random guy and she leaves her kid and her husband behind. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Did you- and that also encountered heavy resistance and pushback yes. in the late 50s and got banned. And yeah, the late 50s was a very different time. Like you weren't making Pretty Baby. You certainly weren't making Damage, et cetera, and yeah. so forth. But yeah, I guess a lot of these filmmakers, when they finally had their moment to make these kinds of stories, it was you know, like the water behind building up behind a dam and they finally the, the floodgates were open. But it's funny, like I don't find Damage to be that disturbing. My stepmother told me that she found it to be just so just emotionally just shattering. I just don't see it that way. I just, yeah, I just, I just, I wasn't traumatized by it. I wasn't disturbed by it. I don't think it's, mm-hmm. I don't think it's that transgressive of a movie compared to something like Crash, which is definitely, I mean, you've got Holly Hunter on a couch, you know, mm-hmm. giving a hand job to one person and diddling a girl beside her. And just like, you know, the watching car crash, you're like, you're in very strange, dangerous sexual terrain there. And I think Crash definitely goes, and it's a couple of years later, but Crash definitely goes right up to the edge of the abyss and looks down in. Well, I think a lot of these movies that have uh, a reputation for their sexual content, whether it's uh, this or Last Tango or even uh, that eight and a half weeks, is it nine and a half weeks? Nine, nine and a half weeks. Nine and a half, yeah. yeah. Uh, I feel like most of them, when you actually watch them, and maybe that's because of where we are today, but they don't really seem that crazy. I don't I Crash, though, for me. Explicit- it, it holds up pretty well and crash definitely yeah, yeah I, 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 I don't think crash is aged a day and that movie is 25 years old no sliver doesn't age very well it's like there's a difference between I mean, like sliver's just comically ridiculous it is that. and it was comically ridiculous when it came out but it was so steeped in the, the cutting edge that it doesn't age very well and it's like and we're using that as a stand-in for other types of movies where it's like the inflation game with like you know the dollar turns into the peso because you've overspent it and now you have to go so much further than that you know, like how could you possibly shock an audience now who's just got you know plane crash videos and strange you know sex all over the place? I on mean, the web? like mm-hmm. once you've seen Solo, how are you ever supposed to you know ever be shocked again? Like and I know I mean, that's one of Matthias's favorite episodes of Wrong Real when we did our commentary to, to yeah. Solo, but it's like there are some <laughs> movies that go right up to the edge of human ex- extremes. And they stay there, and they and they they retain their power. I still haven't seen the movie, by the way. Oh well. That's a movie I can promise you with 
the utmost confidence that um, it will get it will get a reaction. <laughs> there will be an emotional response. I mean, even I felt like you know when I watched Solo, I kind of felt like, well, this too, in some ways, got a little creaky. I mean, there's there's some parts of it that feel surreal just because of the production value. Like the spirit of it, I understand that is definitely disturbing. But there's something about how tactile it was. You you could get movies that are more visually and viscerally tactile. Uh, in the years to come, things that might nail the realities of coprophagia and, and, you know, rape and all those things in movies. If that's the kind of thing you want to see, you can find more horrific examples of it. But that's just yeah, because... Yeah, if you watch, like, irre- Irreversible, that scene yeah, with, yeah, uh, yeah. With, yeah, with Monica Bellucci. I mean, that's just the thing. It's like, you know, you, there's things you can do with reality in 1974 or 73, whenever the hell it came out, that, you, mm-hmm. you know, you can do much better today. Um, you know, but again, it's like we're so desensitized that, you know, the, the, the really hot sex... Of Jeremy Irons and 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 uh, Juliet Binoche grabbing at each other's faces just doing submission holds really looked like big business in '92 or whatever '93, uh, and it's like now it just looks. I mean, it it it's naked. It's naked people, you know, and it happens to be famous naked people. But there's just but so- what I love. Juliet Binoche is still willing to get after it. I mean, she's well into her fifties, and she boned Robert Pattinson in High Life, and I was like, oh okay. And she, I mean, she's a very erotic, sensuous woman to this day and And cosmopolis right yeah exactly she's oh she's hot as hell in cosmopolis and so yeah but i also if you really want to see her like young and lovely and beautiful the unbearable lightness of being and things like that where she kind of got the reputation for being willing to go there and uh she's you know absolutely like just ravishing and three colors blue by uh kislowski i mean i think she's one of the one of the great actresses working today and she's got this unimaginably impressive filmography I just don't think that damage is necessarily at the peak of her um, of her filmography. I think she's done better films. I think she's done more provocative films, more transgressive films. I, I like damage. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. But I just think uh, if you're a Julia, Juliet Binoche fan, it's not going to be like the first bottle of booze you recommend on a shelf to somebody who's never experienced it before. I, I, do, I think this was her first English language film, though. I might, I might, I might be right about that. Gotcha. Another thing, speaking of English language versus French language, because this is the English language Louis Mal episode, we didn't mention at all, uh, I can't pronounce it, like, au revoir, au revoir les enfants, yeah. yeah. Les oh, enfants right. from 1987. A lot of people are going to say, shame on you for not mentioning it. I must not admit, English. I've never seen it, but apparently it's one of his best films he ever made, so. Yeah, supposedly. Well, Matthias, <laughs> Matthias, lead us into the last film on our list, yes. Louis Mal's last film, Vanya on 42nd Street, which takes us into the world of both New York as well as Chekhov. Little vodka? <laughs> not today, no. I can't drink it every day. It's not good for me. For once in your life, let yourself go. Wake up. Pulse with life. What attracts me? What attracts me? Beauty attracts me. Beauty should be pure. A face, a dress, of the mind. Let me go. Let me. Oh, God. She ran away from me the day after we were married. I think she just didn't like me. Oh, my enchanted one, my darling, my darling. No. Disgusting. Oh, have I given up happiness? Yes, but I've kept my pride. 
What a fine man. <laughs> what do you want from me? Nothing. Are you happy? No. I knew you weren't. <laughs> I'm the only one happy. I'm ecstatic. What a lovely day today. Not too hot. Excellent weather for... Oh, please don't leave me alone with him. He'll talk me to death. All we can do is live. Yeah, the idea is um, it's a movie where you see these actors uh, showing up, like that's the intro of it, and they're going to do a play, uh, which is uh, Vanya on 46. Well, Uncle Vanya is the original play, yeah. Yeah, uh, and they're doing it in this this theater that's basically, there's no sets, no nothing, and they're just sitting there uh, doing the play, basically. Uh, and it's people like uh, Wallace Shawn. Uh, and it, it's basically about a family. And at one point, uh, is it the father that uh, he wants to sell the, the farm? And, you know, it's a, it's a lot of yelling and people mad at each other. And uh, uh, Wallace Shawn plays this guy who's been trying to uh, get with uh, Julianne Moore for the longest time and it never happened. And he's angry about that. And he's angry about working for practically no money for his father, I think, and the way his mother has been treated uh, by his father. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of built up resentment and uh, the, the play does a nice job of uh, letting some people blow off some steam. Yeah, we're back in Cherry Orchard territory, which is the only play by Chekhov I've ever read. I read it when I was in high school, where you've got wealthy families hanging onto their property, but they're in a state of decline, mm-hmm. where not a lot of people actually work, not a lot of people actually produce, and they're slowly but surely like selling off pieces of the land or doing whatever they can to get by. And yeah, I guess it was a recurring theme for a lot of people, because like, and you get it in America as well, like Booth Tarkington and the Magnificent Ambersons, where people from a bygone era of great wealth are in a state of decline and everybody's kind of bickering over uh, the leftovers. But what I found interesting about this is that you team up Andre Gregory from My Dinner with Andre with the adaptation working alongside David Mamet. So that was an interesting collision of sensibilities. Yeah, who the fuck knew? I don't know if Mamet speaks Russian or if he if he actually did the translation from Cyrillic to English. I mean, I could believe it because Mamet's a strange man with a lot of skills that, that we don't quite know about. But... Um, yeah, I, 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 Andre Gregory adapted the adaptation. I was trying to figure out, like, well, how, how's the division of labor there? How exactly did that work? And I, I understand that the text was put in, in the framework of the movie. So, you, you know, you have Vanya the play itself, and David Mamet did a translation of that into English, so it sounds very colloquial. That's one of those things that it, the language of the play that they're saying is... Uh, hyperbolically English with a lot of English idiosyncratic, you know, flourishes and things like that. So that's how you know you're dealing with a, a modern hip translation, as they do. Every, every 10, 15, 20 years, they'll do another translation of something to bring it into the modern. And Andre Gregory is the one who said they, him and Wally Sean wanted to stage it 
in this very ad hoc way, we, I mean, apparently they, this is one of these interesting things. Talk about New York intellectuals. Like they did this play for nearly a year and they said, sometimes some theater troops will just work on a play. No money changes hands. They just want to sharpen their game. And so what they do is they'll, they'll do it for a year, every couple of days for weeks and weeks for a year. And they'll have friends come in and watch it. And it, it, it's all just, you know, very Severosa. And um, it's just because the love of the game, just because they want to perform and they want to just, just work on something that's a classic and they maybe just break the bones of it and reshape it. And so well, I imagine for an actor doing a play like this and rehearsing it, and rehearsing it, and rehearsing it over and over again is like a like a martial artist going or a boxer going into fight camp where you're honing and perfecting your skills, getting in shape. And if all you ever do is like a gig here for a Pixar movie or a gig there for some stupid sitcom or cop show or whatever, and you're like, you know, you're a working actor in New York, you're not really getting better at your craft. You're not improving your skill with your instrument but if you rehearse and practice and put on Chekhov for a year you're gonna be a better actor at the end of it especially working with all these marvelous actors like that dude from uh police academy <laughs> george george Gaines, yeah so i imagine for an actor this has got it's essential that you find these opportunities on the side to really explore what it means to be like a thespian because while it might seem staged i mean this is a play from 1898 which is almost as otherworldly as like doing Shakespeare. But if you want to get better, you got to do this shit. Yeah. One of the great things about acting that the, like the great mystery of it. I mean, I've studied some acting mostly just to be a better filmmaker. Also because I'm interested in acting as a craft. I like to know what I'm looking at. You know, one of the things they tell you is that, you know, you, you got to learn the text, but then you got to throw the text away. So you're not repeating it. You're not just, you're not just saying something out of repetition and mimesis. You have to just put it aside and then live inside of it and come at it with a new feeling every single time you do it. And that's why these, these stage-trained actors, they really learn how to inhabit the work every single night so you give it a performance. Um, I mean, that to me, I, I could read that and I could explain that to you, but I don't know how to fucking do that. I don't know what it means to get into that position of being able to do it at a top level. You know, and suffice it to say, the actors that they hired for this were all stage trained actors. A lot of them were like New York royalty. Lynn Cohen had been in New York. She plays Maman. She'd been in New York for a while. I didn't read until I watched, until I looked at the biography after watching this, I didn't realize that Julianne Moore I think she went to BU and she had like a master's in theater and she was like classically trained on these old texts. And it's like, you know, for me, she just arrived fully formed in the 90s and all the independent films. But she yeah, like had the rocks, the cradle and stuff like that. Right, right. And then into the shortcuts and all the, all the, the P.T. Andersons and things like that. It's like, well, she had a long career on stage that was post-collegiate. And it's like, I didn't know. I mean, obviously, she's a great yeah, actor. Her movie career didn't really get going until her 30s. I mean, uh, and by 2000, when she did does Hannibal, she's 40 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and she um, had done soap operas like a couple of years before this. You take, you take the work where you can get it. She was, she was living in New York. I think they shot most of the soap operas in New York, at least half of them in New York. And so, yeah, it's interesting that she has this entire, uh, I mean, she really fits in. This isn't the kind of thing you used to see. She's her a North Carolina girl. And that's true. I, I met her on, on Hannibal. There's one time I had to drive her somewhere and she hops in the car and she's, Spun toward me and with a smile that would melt the heart of an entire nation. She goes, Hi, I'm Julie. I was like, ah! <laughs> like I just completely lost my shit. I was like, All right, where would you like me to take you? We're gonna just drive around for a month because I, I am in I am in heaven. <laughs> that sounds awesome. 
Oh, she's she's so damn cool. And she would learn everybody's name on the set. And uh, she just the crew was just completely infatuated with her. So we're going back to like Julie Binoche, Julianne Moore, another legendary actress with a legendary career. And yeah, she's at the she's at the bare bones beginning of a really, really strong career here. But this is the time where she's doing things like safe. And she just has always had balls of steel from the word go, still doing great work to this day. I mean, y'all mentioned David Cronenberg earlier. The fact that in her 50s, she's totally new doing a three-way and like, you know, this director's on the phone. She's like, hey, like mention me when you talk to people. Like, you know, still just, <laughs> she's willing, willing to do anything. I just, I, I love everything about her career. She's worked with so many legendary filmmakers all, all around the world. And, but yeah, this is when she's, I'm looking at her, uh, her, her filmography right now. I mean, yeah, still very early. This is this, uh, one year after Shortcuts. I, and one year before safe. I read, um, I, I saw a quote from Andre Gregory. He did an interview for um, RogerEbert.com and he mentioned that Bob Altman was one of those guys in the audience that would come. They'd have friends come over and watch this production as it was firing for a long time. And so um, Altman watched this one night and said, who's that redhead? I got to have her. And that's how she got cast for Shortcuts. I mean, she came back later on to do this movie, which is like, by this point, she was part of the production. They weren't going to do it without her. Um, and this is not an obvious movie on top of that. This is really an experiment. And this was not intended to be Louis Maul's final movie. He died of, uh, he died of untimely uh, circumstances. Was it a, a cancer, heart attack? I, I forget exactly what it was. Um, but he's only in his 60s. This thing, Louis Maul might have had like one of those... Uh, uh, careers where he, he died of lymphoma. In lymphoma, yeah, the thing that Jeff uh, Jeff Bridges was just diagnosed with. So you know, oh, yeah, I that, saw that. That son of a bitch is a killer. That's for true. But um, yeah, who knows what kind of movies he would have made? And you know, he wasn't intending on this being his final movie. You know, and 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 this is nineteen eighty four. He could have went until two thousand. He could have went until two thousand five. Who the hell knows what you would have seen from him thereafter? Well, Matthias, where do you stand on Chekhov? Any, any interest in, have you ever studied any uh, Chekhov plays or anything like that? Or no, any, really. any idea on how strong an adaptation this is? Not really. I, I, I know, the only thing I know is Chekhov. You're from Europe, man. You're supposed to know all these things. You're supposed to know all the paintings, all the plays, all the stuff. <laughs> all the, uh, all yeah. the saints. That's, kinda, that's, that's why we invite Europeans on the show. Ah, is that so? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like uh, whenever we watch a movie together, at some point, uh, Bill will say Chekhov's blank, you know, and then, uh, then we'll see if it uh, pops back up in the plot of the movie. Chekhov's yeah. alligator, yeah. Chekhov's falcon, yeah. Chekhov's mummy. Yeah, there's there's any number of plot devices, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't love this adaptation. I felt it was kind of weird that... Um, it seemed like they didn't change like the, the, the names of the places, you know what I mean? And so they were like trying to uh, say the Russian names and things like that, which that's I, always I a tricky like, thing. When we read Cherry Orchard, we read it in here. English, but it had Russian names and we were like yeah. 16. So that was a bit of a stumbling block for a lot of us. And I remember at one point the teachers from Tennessee was like, look, if you need to just change all the names to Bob and to Greg and so on and yeah. so forth. But just like, <laughs> it, it just was tough for us to, to wrestle with, but yeah, I, I for me, it's a weird thing where this once again going back to my dinner with Andre, like this is a, a way of life that's completely disintegrating. Like in the context of the of the Chekhov, it's a way of life that's disintegrating. But this world of theater is also disintegrating, and there are still theaters around, and you'll see people like um, who's the guy who uh, did um, 
God damn it. Um, three billboards outside uh, Evan, uh, Missouri. Martin McDonough. Yeah, yeah, like Martin McDonough. He'll do a play. Like I saw the play of A Handing in Spokane and it was incredible. <laughs> and you had um, Christopher Walken there. And so th- you do get great plays. And before COVID came, I actually had tickets to see a David Mamet play that was going to have Lawrence Fishburne and a bunch of other people. And then the whole thing got canceled and unraveled. So the, I, I don't want to overstate the case that that world is unraveling, but obviously it's not the main art. Like in New York in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, a big play would get bought by Hollywood and would be turned into a hit movie. Now it's the reverse. Right. A stupid hit movie like Shrek will come along and they turn it into a play. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. the world of the theater has deteriorated from its heyday. Well, this is also a different phenomenon, too. You're talking about, um, rather than just do a straight, you know, you, you, uh, just a couple of years ago, Christopher Plummer and Miranda Richards, no, not Miranda, uh, Helen Mirren, were in an adaptation of, I think, a Dostoevsky movie. A, 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 I forget the fuck it was called, but it was like one of those big uh, uh, holiday-type movies that was supposed to be an Oscar bait. And I think Walk, uh, Plummer got nominated for an Oscar, but nobody saw the goddamn thing because it was a high-profile, high-class, you know, literary adaptation, the kind that they make for awards, but people don't actually want to see them. And, you know, this isn't that. This is, again, Andre Gregory kind of like breaking the bones of just doing a, you know, they could have shot this somewhere in in, in Serbia or in St. Petersburg that year and actually put them inside high-necked corsets and, and, you know, uh, the the, the fineries of aristocracy at the time. And they didn't do that. Instead, they decided to do it in in the the, the deteriorating New Amsterdam Theater, which, as we all know, is where the fucking Lion King was born in 1997. That's I saw that unendurable it's like oh you take a hour and a half long animated classic and add a bunch of filler and make it longer and add some really shitty songs and now you got the Lion King musical <laughs> but you know the only thing I when I was doing the research on this I never saw this but I remember that Demi directed the master builder he took Ibsen and him and Wally Shawn Wally Shawn did the adaptation of it and he starred as the master builder um and it's like that phenomenon doesn't happen very often. And you have a couple of guys, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be these guys. And I don't know who the inheritors to that legacy is. And I'm not even sure I'm the guy who wants to see that. Yeah. I, but like, I, who are the young playwrights in their 20s now? Like, I want to be a playwright. I, I don't know how many, how much of an influx of talent there is going into that versus like, I want to be the next TikTok superstar. Yeah. Like, there are more, more people going on TikTok than into the world of theater. I mean, at the same time, I saw Behanding in Spokane too in that same run. And, and again, it was deep because you had, what is it, Dan? and Kazan were in it and Anthony Mackie and Sam Rockwell it was a, it was a stocked cast one of those things that you know was it sold tickets it was only open for about two or three months because you know that was it you get in there and get out you know and it's like I've seen a couple of Martin McDonough plays and I've seen all of his movies and I'm like I don't love his work and I see he's like very much a Tarantino type provocateur uh, but he's kind of what theater has become. It's got to be loud. It's got to be inflammatory. It's got to be on the edge. And and I mean, Jesus, The Lieutenant of Inishmore was a violent play with, I mean, gore and body parts and arterial sprays of blood on stage in New York. And it's like, that's not the kind of thing that you would see back in the 80s, but it is the kind of thing you'd see in the 2000s. But the idea of the, the, the world of letters, the intellectual... Um, you know, the, the safe, quiet, two people sitting over a vodka talking about something, completely intellectual. Like that is maybe more the age you're describing that I think has, has, has vanished or is vanishing because those practitioners are gone. And so it's like, I know people can talk about being reverent of Chekhov, but it's like, who's, no one's emulating Chekhov. And like I said, again, I'm not sure I want to see that, but I do want it to exist in the world. I want to, I want to have the option of being able to see it. If, yeah, it's like opera, but the thing is now like opera appeals to a very small niche wealthy audience yep. and it exists, 
but it's not like one of the main drivers like the way it would have been like in the like early 1800s. It's a tiny little ice flow. It's cracking off because they never changed over who their core audience was as like fucking comic books. Comic books never refilled themselves with new readers. So it's the same me and you, the same 45 year old dudes reading the X-Men. <laughs> I don't even include I don't even include myself among them anymore because I, I don't buy comics. You don't anymore. buy comics anymore. Right. So it's just me. I'm, I'm the only guy left on the on the beachhead. That's it. Well, Matthias, I know that we got a, a bit of a ticking clock where Scurry's got another podcast looming, but I want you to give mm. the, the beginner's guide to Louis Mal. Say somebody's 18, 19 years old up there, and they're like, who the fuck is Louis Mal? How do I get started? Mm. What are the essentials? <laughs> I would say... No pressure, what, what, no what, pressure. What, 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 what are your fa- <laughs> well, no five favorite Louis Mal films? What's, what are the gateway drugs? I would definitely say Escalator to the Gallows. That's a great one. Uh, oh, you say escalator? Yeah, I've always heard it's, it's always been elevator to the gallows in America. Oh, you know what? I might be getting it wrong. But I think I, escalator I actually might be the literal yeah. translation, though. Yeah. yeah, that could be. I don't know. I think it was an elevator, wasn't it? Um, but anyways, there's that one. That's a really cool movie. Uh, the Mouse Davis, baby. A, yeah. And I was a huge fan. Uh, we only watched this because of like an IMDb recommendation, I think. But um, the movie Viva Maria, it's yeah. one of the funniest things Uh certainly that i've seen in a long time it's incredible it's incredible Western comedy yeah. incredible yeah it was uh brigitte bardot and jean moreau during uh, as like a traveling circus kind of thing in um in mexico during the revolution kind of thing it, it's really bizarre but and and there's a lot of jokes in it that are really like kind of juvenile almost but it's really funny um i would say atlantic city if that's your kind of movie um, I would say Alamo Bay's recommendation. I, I really liked Crackers as well. I thought that was a good one. Um, well, that's five, right? So, yeah. Yeah, that's a film festival. That's a rock block right there. Yeah. And Did then, you-, you know, he's got a ton of movies that I haven't seen, so I can't really... Uh, talk about those yeah i you know that's the thing he does have i mean i could sit here until i'm red in the face talking about the movies i haven't seen of his but the the ones i have it's you know like i'll tell you the pitch about why you'd like him if you're like me and you are a sales dude and you know it's not not just the sort of you know meat and potatoes filmmaking of john sales but it's that humanist novel uh, approach not novel isn't strange but like a novelist approach to just human stories with recognizable characters. I think Louis Malle really gets at that. Uh, and on top of that, he's a filmmaker who's a real visual director, knows how to do set pieces, and is pretty innovative, and handles uh, humor, as well as sadness, as well as sex, as well as violence, as well as drama. All these things, it's like there's kind of no way to flank this guy. Um, and it's not every director who has all those tools in his arsenal, but Louis Malle is a rare guy who can kind of like zip back and forth. I mean, those are our greatest filmmakers, the guys who can zip back and forth between not just an entire film in one genre, but within this thing, you know, tone within a film. Uh, those, those things are like real masterpieces. And I would say, you know, if you can handle uh, My Dinner with Andre, to me, I think that's the sort of alpha and omega just because, I mean, again, it's not the greatest movie, but I just feel like it's so emblematic of a type of Someone argue that it's not even a movie. Like, it completely yeah. abandons all the trappings of cinema by <laughs> st- just strip, stripping it all away. I, basically I, a play. Basically a play, or a monologue, or a radio show, or a podcast. Yeah, it's something like that. It's all those weird things. Um, you know, I, I think, you know what you're going to get with the rest of his films, but that, even among his films, stands out as something very unusual and, and, and you know, non-formatic irregular and i i love the fact that he was the guy that took a shot at it and that movie was made because he decided to make it they made it and they said let's bring him in on it he said i can make this and i had the juice to get it made and it didn't cost anything to make 
And it's just a real testament to the kind of irregularity that uh, film can give you sometimes. Um, but, you know, Alamo Bay, like Matthias said, was great. I didn't love Crackers as much. Uh, but but yeah, uh, Viva Maria is, is uh, you know, as much as we can sit here and peddle this movie, I think it was, what, what year was that, 67, Matthias? Is yeah, it? 64 or 5. Oh, 64 or 5, I'm wrong about that. So it's almost yeah. like a Looney Tunes movie. It almost, it's like Chuck yeah, fucking Jones. French icons with Gatling guns. Like, yes. <laughs> Very unusual, but completely, wor- I mean, it has these moments of just physical comedy and, and you know, the rev- the Marxist spirit of the of the day and age that's there. That, that is a movie that zips back and forth between horrific violence, not unlike the Wild Bunch, and then like comedy, like a guy walking away with his own head because it got blown off in a bomb explosion. So many strange things, but that was a shitload of fun. And it's what I, you know, you love when you watch a movie that you didn't expect, you didn't know, you took a flyer on it and it blows your asshole open. And Viva Maria was one of those films too. It's like a real like quarantine pandemic time treat. One of the few bright spots that came out of this uh, whole nightmare. Well, we're going to have to reunite for some Herzog. And obviously the career is big. We have to break it into pieces, but it might have to be one of the things like, because like years ago, I tackled just the Kinski and Herzog flicks with mm-hmm. my trainer, Arrest Ludwig, and being from German and Germany, and he's a massive Klaus Kinski and Herzog fan. But like, there's so much to get to on that. It, you can't do it in a single episode. So you have to, I think, you have to find a way to narrow the topic. Like, I mean, we could just start with something simple, like how many times did he fly into like a like a, an inactive <laughs> volcano or you know, <laughs> nearly get eaten by a grizzly bear or whatever. But we, we, we'll figure it out to be continued on that. But yeah. Matthias, if people want started to, small. I'm yeah. sorry, what'd you say? Even dwarfs smart started small. small. I mean, yeah, yeah, we could just, I mean, As you could says. do an entire episode just about that. I mean, like even dwarfs started small. I love it. I had one of those old Anchor Bay DVDs back like in 99 or 2000. And yeah, I watched it many times over. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's a, a fascinating movie and subject to explore. But Matthias, if people want to talk more about your European sensibilities and so on and so forth, where do people find you online? If they want to continue uh, talking about Louis Mal or Werner yes. Herzog or any of the above mentioned topics? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Matt R says uh, two T's. Beautiful. Mr. Scurry, what do you got cooking in the oven with your podcast? Well, and also, I, I know you got a big video series coming our I way. I do. Well. You know, by the time this podcast drops, I will have started uh, the first five episodes of the next 10 of my video essay series, American Caesar. Um, yeah, so the topics I got coming up, I've got an episode about Deep Roy. I got an episode about David Warner. I got an episode about the Bounty movies, which we talked about in a podcast like a year and a half ago. Um, I got a Brad Dourif, which I'm really happy about. I think... Uh, I, I think I think I got exactly what I wanted to say about Brad Dourif. And so I hope it's a successful video like my Kenneth McMillan one was. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the first and Alexander Payne, which maybe not the right time to drop a, a thing about him, but I'm, I'm, I can't. I, I, fuck it. He, I'm a big fan of Alexander Payne. Let's talk about the work. He got me too, but he for Rose McGowan, but he's denying. Is that the, la, the, it, the latest? Right. It's yeah, just it's a so. it's a smolder, not a bonfire. But I'm going to take my chances with it just because, you know, it's yeah. Let's see what happens. Yeah, I that. saw it. I think it's at least the last I heard was it's a he said, she said she claims one thing. He claims another. And I don't know if we'll ever get any deeper than that. No. Anyway, so the, those will come out on a biweekly schedule uh, and I'm working on the next five in the back half and that'll be, but I'm, I'm excited. People, hopefully I got, I got a lot of good responses from the first season. The Kenneth McMillan one actually went viral because people, that's the only type of sort of quote unquote scholarship about Ken McMillan. And so I'm happy people, not just movie nerds, but you know, people sort of in the culture. That's the key. If you can find a topic that's being totally neglected, 
you can suddenly tap into some traffic that you did not anticipate. So yeah, and I say, I mean, it's got a couple of thousand views. It's not like it's uh, it's not the not the guy on the skateboard drinking a, a, a you know ocean spray while he does his yeah. Stevie Nicks songs. But it's it's its own thing, and I'm I'm happy about the little bit of heat that it got on it. But you can find me. I'm on Twitter at William Scurry, and I do a podcast on the Reg with my good buddy Noah Tarno. Uh, it's called I Don't Get It, and that the podcast is at Noah and Bill Show on Twitter as well. Beautiful. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down some Louis Mal flicks. I feel like he's one of those directors that doesn't come up that often. And a lot of these movies I hadn't seen before. So I always love episodes that take me into unexplored terrain. And, you know, as I become an, an old, bitter old bastard, I find that I, I'm just increasingly preoccupied with making sure that I at least have seen the essentials by all the great directors of the 20th century. So love the topic and I look forward to more conversations with you all in the future. But remember to leave a rating review for the show, hunt us down on social media, all that good stuff. And if you want some video content, Geeking with James Hancock is where you can find it. I just posted a, an animated video called Dead Astronaut that I licensed recently that I'm uh, very proud of. And we got Bill Tech cutting Hobo with the High Kick, which is coming <laughs> your way in the very near future. But thanks so much for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>